Oh, that's so stupid. I love it. <laughs> yeah. But it's like the best kind of GW stupid, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it's great. <laughs> I appreciate a good GW stupid as opposed to a bad Twitter stupid. Oh, my God, Twitter is so stupid. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I got off Twitter. <laughs> I liked, I liked, now how can we convince Elon Musk to buy Ticketmaster? <laughs> Uh, only. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that needs to get enlisted. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And today we are going to do something we've never, ever in the history of the show done before, and that is review a Astromilitarum Codex on time. We're actually going to talk about it as soon as we can, which is... A first for us, um, since none of us play guard. Um, so we are going into this about as cold as one possibly can. Yes, but... in standard fashion, we will do it poorly. Yay! Yes. <laughs> we will keep that tradition alive. <laughs> so our standards and pores, got it. Exactly! It's like, we have standards on this show. We are going to talk about guard poorly. Or any codex poorly, really, for that matter. But, you know, we're going to do our, but especially our best. Guard. Especially guard. <laughs> We're going to do our best uh, to tell you 10 things you need to know about the Astra Militarum. But uh, before that, uh, news, new releases, and your listener mail. Um, and our news and new releases are guard. Um, this box just went up for pre-order yesterday as of time of recording. Although Games Workshop was kind enough to send us a copy of the Cadian Stands box, which does include a special edition uh, Astro Militarum Codex with a pretty horsey on the cover. And a dude riding Ooh. the pretty horsey. Yes. A pretty robot horsey with robot legs. Because, I mean, if you're going to have a horse, you might as well give him, you know, sick robot legs, right? I um, mean, fair. But yes, the, uh, the, the new Cadia Stands box is the first set of, like, all the new models that are being released. It's not going to be all of them because there's some things that are not reflected in here. Uh, but it's um, the new, uh, I believe it's the Cadian Commands. Yeah, one Cadian Command Squad, 20 Cadian Shock Troops, so two two boxes of those. One Armored Sentinel, which you can build as a Scout Sentinel, and two Ordnance Teams, which are the new field guns that they've put out. I, I, I think we mentioned this a couple of episodes ago. I do like the the look of the new Cadians, the, the better proportions. They don't look so cartoony. Mm-hmm. Um, the the units themselves have a better mix of of models as far as like poses are more dynamic. There's male and female models in there. It's just it's a better set overall. Are th- are they still on twenty five millimeter or did they upgrade the base size? Ah, uh, let's see. I don't. Uh, it Cause I, does not say, I, it just says all models are supplied with their appropriate bases. Let me crack open the instruction manual and verify. Because I know when, like, the Karsakin, uh kill team came out a couple weeks ago, I know a lot of people are complaining that they were on, like, 28 mil bases. And, 
you know, scale creep in 40k, yada, yada, yada. So I was just wondering if the standard guardsmen are still on 25 mils. Okay, so there are the there are 20 25 millimeter bases included so that's going to be okay. for the cadian infantry the command squad is on 28 millimeter bases okay that makes sense so but your standard guardsmen are still on 25 that's yes that's standard good. guardsmen are still on 25s and the field guns are on 100 millimeter bases As a, yeah those bases are huge <laughs> yeah they are gigantic the guns themselves like the gun carriages are very large um, and then the new Sentinel is on an 80 millimeter base, which is a definite upsize for it. And it's got chunkier legs than it did before. Yeah. It's a better looking model than the old Sentinel for sure. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, so that, that's what's included as, in, as well as, um, the data cards, like for the stratagems and things like that, stratagems and orders and psychic powers. And then the the codex, and I will say that based on what is included in the codex, this is also the combat patrol. So what they've put in this box is what is going to be the combat patrol when that is released for for guard, which gives you an HQ, two troops, uh, heavy support, and a fast attack. So yeah. not a bad assortment. And, uh, yeah, the models are good. And they're also, these are not monopose, although they are kind of like the way the, like a lot of the newer models are being done where like, there's a, like each one has a body and then there's like two different ways you can like mm-hmm. two different arm sets you could put on, whether you want to give them like a las gun or a different las gun or a special weapon or like a vox cast or something like that. Yeah, that's how so, the, the Death Corps Krieg models were in the Octarius Kill Team box. So, like, they, uh, you, you had some flexibility, but they weren't completely interchangeable. Right. So, like, there's one model that can hold a flamer. There's one model that can hold a plasma gun, one that can hold a melt-a-gun, one that can hold a grenade launcher. And then there's others, there's, like, two. To give you a little bit more variety, there's also a couple that can, like, hold las guns in different ways or here's one with a med kit here's one with that has a vox caster so you've got you won't end up with a too much sameness and then the sergeant can be built with three or four different war gear options and a bunch of different heads there's something like looks like 20 different interchangeable infantry heads you can use so you've got you can keep them, even though they're, you're going to see like the same ten poses or, over and over again. You're going to see different, you know, different looks on them, which is good. Mm-hmm. And even the the Cadian Command Squad is one you might not mind doubling up on because, like, the guy who carries the banner is also the same body that can hold a special weapon. Like, all in all, it's it's a it's a nice it's a nice set of kits. Um, I haven't put it, obviously, I, I'm not putting any of these together because I'm giving them to Richard because he will also be using interchangeable heads because he'll be putting Brood Brothers heads on them, I imagine. <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think this is the, it's the start of a new line and this is not 
the only models. Obviously, we talked uh, a couple episodes ago about like the new commissar model who does not have a giant hat and makes me sad. But that's not up yet. the uh, The new heavy weapons teams are not up yet, so we don't know like if those are on smaller bases now or if they're on the same bases and they've upsized the models a little bit. Um, also, another model that was announced and we have not seen yet, but we do have the rules now, is the Rogaldorn battle tank. We had the yeah, we have yeah, the yeah. big brother of the Lehman Russ. Now this uh, we're a little bit late on this because last episode we were talking uh, U.S. Open. Uh, I think that was revealed that week. But uh, the Rogaldorn is basically sits right between the size of a Lehman Russ and a Bane Blade. And again, we'll be getting into the rules for that. But it is like uh, a lot of large range tanks like that. It is made of gun. Um, as much as much gun as like a like you'd see on like a space marine tank these days. So that is that's another one that we're looking forward to. And beyond that, there's not. It looks like a lot of the the guard are going to be running off of uh, existing model lines. And then there's a couple of new characters that we're seeing as well. Uh, there was the uh, Lord Solar. Uh, let me get his full his full name. Then we've got Lord Solar Leontis, who is the the uh, chap riding that robot or the horse with the the sick robot legs. Um, so we have an Imperial Guard like High Lord on uh, on horse yeah. to lead armies, and he is the character featured on the uh, the cover of the special edition codex. And then also Ursula Creed, the daughter of Ursicar Creed. Uh, has basically taken her dad's place, and that model is also not out yet, but has been announced. I imagine that'll probably be in the second wave in a month or so when the when the actual codex comes out. Right, right. Because that's kind of how they did it with like Leagues of Votan, where they put the uh, they put the box out, and then the codex and all the other kits came out a month or right. so later. Yes, exactly. So. Uh, so, yeah, we'll probably see that once this gets its full release in December. But as for right now, this is definitely a good a good launch set for the army. But that's not all. That's not the only thing that was uh, announced for pre-order this, this past week. There's also the Goff Rocker. The new Christmas model this year is a plastic reimagining of the classic Goff Rocker. And again, Games Workshop was kind enough to send us a preview model, and it has been handed off to Richard. And Richard, I, I know this is kind of getting ahead of hobby progress a bit, but how have you been liking this Goff Rocker model? Oh, he's he's sweet. There is lots of cool little details on, on this model from this stick bomb microphone to squig amp and flying v guitar he's he is very cool and uh yes the the video that they released alongside <laughs> him is fantastic with a full orky rendition of jingle bells which is available on Spotify and Apple Music, I would like to add. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I really like that song. It's catchy. It's stuck in my head. I can listen to it on repeat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're going all in on this one, and you got to love it. You got to love it. Uh, you can even download the tour poster for it. I mean, there, uh, there are shirts that they're going... They're selling merch for him. I mean... 
I said, you can pre-order the golf rocker. Why not form your very own Warhammer band with this gnarly green skin on lead vocals, the infernal and rapturous on strings, the slobbity bi- piper on gut pipes, and the new chaos knight tooting his horn. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now I love the, I love how they're like they're going all in on this because this is as as we mentioned kind of before we start talking. This is this is dumb, but this is the fun kind of dumb. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> This is like old, old, old school GW fun, and you have to. I mean, they're they are having a blast with it, and uh, I, yeah, it, it's just really cool to see. Um, otherwise, I think it's mostly been uh, Age of Sigmar news because uh, they had like their new Slaves of Darkness box, which w- does include the new Demon Prince mm-hmm. uh, model. Uh, I am. I'm not going to pick up that entire army box to get a new Demon Prince, but it will be available on its own in a couple of months, I imagine. As much as I don't like the generic head for it with the needle teeth. Yeah, but the other head is way better because there's, there's oh, like yeah. three or four heads for it. And yeah, the, the other ones are much, much better. Right. Yeah, the other heads for the Demon Prince are just really cool. And I'm assuming because like, well, I know they, they said that that is going to, inc- that does include the parts for the, uh, 40 K version of the demon Prince where it's, he's got like, you can have like a warp bolter on his arm mm-hmm. and such. A, and, and the armor is a little bit more power armor, a little bit less fantasy. So I did see, uh, in one of the Facebook groups I'm in, somebody posted pictures of the new demon Prince and like all of the bits that come with it. Basically they said the, the, since it was an age of, you know, age of darkness, uh, slaves of darkness, age of Sigmar box set, they didn't put the 40 K instructions. Ah, so this is like on a, there. The, okay. But, but the, but the parts were all on there. So like the backpack and the other armor pieces and stuff like that. So it's like, you didn't get instructions on how to put them together, but you can figure it out. So it right. is, you know, it is going to be a full dual kit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm excited for it. I'll, I'll definitely pick that demon prince up when, uh, when it comes out. Mm hmm. Um, we haven't seen any more, uh, official announcements for anything from, uh, world eaters. There was a supposed <laughs> leak of the points page. I don't buy it because there's some yeah. things that are notably missing. If that, if that is the world eaters army list, I'm quitting this hobby. Cause that's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> like if, if that's all they give us, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with this hobby. Cause that is friggin' garbage. <laughs> <laughs> So it's it yeah it's not that it's that's clearly a fake, <laughs> right? Also, like Angron only being like three hundred points is also a de- another dead giveaway. <laughs> yeah, like this is like with some sort of weird reverse wish listing or something. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, uh, but yes, yeah. yeah. So uh, so no, that's pretty much it as far as forty k news. Um, so let's go ahead and move forward to listener mail. As always, these letters are written by you, the listeners, and we'll tell you how you can have your letter read on the air at the end of the segment. Uh, so first up is from a letter from Dustin B, who is actually somebody I have had a chance to play before at a number of events, and he's actually been to Kansas City to play at Midwest Conquest. Uh, Dustin writes, warning, bloated transmission incoming. Hi, team. Uh, Long time no write, actually, until recently, long time no listen, which is what brings me to write in today. 
I am slowly returning from my longest absence from the hobby since I got back in during 7th edition. Uh, Since nearly the beginning of the year, I have not had the motivation to build, paint, or play. Although I was never a regular gamer prior to this, I would still hobby frequently. Uh, Early pandemic, it was almost liberating to paint whatever I felt like as I wasn't preparing for a new event. However, as 9th edition dragged on, I lost all motivation. Uh, the best I could do was listen to audiobooks, visit to Bo- the, the Bolter and Chainsword, and that was it. I even went from waiting to listen to your next release to having a six-month backlog of episodes I am now slowly cherry-picking through. I figured gaming would probably help motivate me to build or paint, but I have no desire to game. Life may certainly have had an impact on my desire to participate in the hobby. I think the biggest culprit is 9th edition. I really enjoyed 8th edition, especially after 7th. I regularly played at events and had some fun games. Rarely would I have a rules argument. If there was a disagreement, I kept the free four-page rules handout nearby. A quick reference to those four pages of core rules or the codex usually ended any issues on the rules. Enter 9th edition. I can't even read a sentence or two of this faux legalese before I fall asleep and give up. This is exacerbated by the growing number of special rules, stratagems, and the new quarterly balanced updates and biannual mission booklets. So, so where's my point with this mini-epic? Well, having listened to some of your recent podcasts on the state of the edition... I feel I'm not alone. Has GW ruined what was an excellent base in 8th edition rules and writing and focused too heavily on the competitive scene? Uh, Sure, they released Crusade rules, but even your summary of the rules had my eyes glazing over. It seemed, despite some early excitement over Crusade, the long release schedule of codexes meant that by the time most books have been released and can now fully participate, no one is running campaigns. With murmurs of 10th edition floating around, how much of a priority would you put on improving the readability of the rules and refocusing the support for the game towards the greater community if you think it's needed at all? Bloated transmission ends. Dustin. Um, yeah, I'd say, I would say at this point in the cycle, if 10th edition is indeed coming in the summer, which we're getting... Like, no official indications of, but with the Codex cycle, a fit, like, the old Codex is officially completed with Astra mm-hmm. And then with one additional Codex that we know of coming in, d- in, like, January. And then after that, the focus is going to be on, like, new styles of play with, like, the upcoming Arcs of Omen stuff, since they've showed us, like, the new boarding boarding party rule or you know like the like kind of like larger version of what they're doing with kill team right now um i don't know if they're necessarily going to put a lot of stock into revising the rules because at that point you're looking at like a 9.5 which might as well be a 10th at that point anyway um would i say he's not alone i i would definitely agree with that we're, we've been getting a yep. fair amount of mail of mail lately it's like this and and we've even pointed out like in past episodes this game is feeling too complicated too bloated there's too much to balance games workshop is struggling to i mean they're making a valiant effort to keep things balanced and try to do what they can and I think they're they're getting there, but it's definitely not in any way that makes things easier because we've got all these additional rules that are stacked on top of codexes now that you have to to take into account. Although, uh, as 
something we've pointed out before, a lot of the the things that we look at really only apply to matched play. So like if you aren't playing mm-hmm. matched play, you can't ignore like the balanced data slate and you can't ignore the like the Nephilim mission packet and things like that. Although that is definitely the majority of play is match play or match play style gaming because it's the yeah. easiest for pickups. It's what people are people are running at tournaments and to practice for tournaments. So it's definitely something you have to be aware of and be ready to engage with if, unless you can find like a dedicated uh, uh, crusade group. Um, and in regards to that, like I was talking to the guy who ran uh, the crusade league uh, here in Lee Summit recently that it just finished up, like it finished up the week of US Open. And so it was like, I, I apologize. I'm like, I, um, I, I'm sorry, I dropped out for the last two weeks. I was prepping for the US Open Crusade event. Um, but he said they had 20 people sign up. And by the end, like 20 people signed up and paid in because it was like there was a pay in for like price support. And of those 20, we probably had eight regular players, which was actually more than he expected because he originally expected to get maybe four signups total. (laughs) So, um, so like it was a good turnout for crusade play and there were games regularly going on. So that was good, but yeah, it's definitely not where everybody's going for 40 K. And I, I also think pointing out that, uh, the fact that some, some codexes couldn't really play uh, you could play crusade but you can't really engage with it fully until now like if you are a guard player which dustin is by the way dustin's a guard player he's been having to basically work with an eighth edition codex until now (laughs) so he doesn't get to engage with stuff like crusade really fully um yeah it's kind of a rough spot to to be in I, I now I don't know if I would agree with the characterization that ninth edition is faux legalese. I don't think the core rules are that much more difficult than eighth. They're really similar. Yeah. No, I, I think I think I the mean, biggest problem is to solve the stacking of rules and stratagems and sub factions and things like that on top of it, where you get these specifically weird interactions that you have to parse out. Um, and I think that's where the game is more complicated than it than it probably needs to be. Um, and it's interesting because I do, you, I think you can feel that design philosophy shift in this upcoming, you know, Astro Militarum Codex that we're going to review. You can definitely tell that there's something different with the way they're building this and building the sub factions and building the army traits. Um, so maybe that's a hint for where they're going to go, trying to simplify it going forward. I don't know, but that definitely is. Uh, I, I definitely understand where they come from with the legalese argument because there's a lot of parsing of like things that you have to do and like every stratagem has, you know, specific things like well, at you know has to be used at this phase, did you know? And it's it, it can be hard to follow. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll agree with that, but my other take on it is once you get used to it, it flows. Mm-hmm. It's just that getting over that initial hump. To where things make sense, and then you're like, oh, okay, this is what they're going for, this is what this means, and because then you can kind of apply the same stuff to lots of other things that has the same legalese in it. Yeah, I won't disagree with that, but there is definitely, like, Ninth has a deceptively easy-to-learn core rule set, and then, yeah, a, a steep learning curve when it gets to actually playing with your codex, and especially if you're 
playing multiple codexes. Although I will say that the the way they've been writing rules to encourage you to run in general, like mono mono army armies, like mono faction armies, like who does that? <laughs> most people, Dennis. Um, most people do. Although. Even then, we, like, especially with Chaos Armies, we see a lot of caveats, you know, things, the cutouts are like, hey, if you run 25% of, like, demons, it doesn't impact, yeah. like, your Chaos Space Marines, or vice versa, or uh, you can splash into Knight, a Chaos Knight, and it, or an Imperial Knight into an Imperium Army, and it's not going to impact your other rules. So it's like, you still have a little bit of that, but with a lot of things being like, oh, yeah, if you aren't running straight. Like, and we'll see there's a little bit of that in the Guard Codex. And we definitely see it in Leagues of Votan, where if you're not running le- straight Leagues of Votan, you don't get access to, like, a third of your rule, <laughs> like, your army-wide rules. Like, they're, they're definitely writing rules to kind of encourage that and simplify it maybe a little bit. But not, you know, we've, we, we've hashed over this before. As to the, has GW ruined what was an excellent base in 8th edition and focused too much on the competitive scene? I I don't think so. And I one of the reasons I like and again, we've had this discussion in the past and like there was the uh, Gorilla Miniature Games video that Ash Barker did about um like hey, you know, if a company focuses purely on the competitive scene, it leaves all the casual players behind and then when the competitive players get tired of it, then there's no one left, which is actually a space where Games Workshop was kind of veering towards i think early this year when and even like you know mid middle of last year like when when uh drakari were winning everything the mechanicus was winning everything and then when nids were winning everything like there are periods where when one faction especially if it's the newest faction starts tearing everything up and there's no clear answer to it the cat the competitive players start losing interest and that will cascade down until, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, it's because at, with any game, and as, as, as sometimes I don't want to acknowledge it, I will absolutely acknowledge it. Competitive play drives participation as far as like mass participation. It doesn't, there's now, there's plenty of people that don't play competitively. It's just a matter of finding that kind of play group where you can play casually, where you can play and just ignore a lot of the, the balance issues and just like, just play what you want. But Mm -hmm. as far as driving the community and kind of pushing the overall community, competitive play tends to do that. And if competitive play starts to split, it leads to a perception that the game is in a bad place, which will discourage new players from joining in and will start causing the player base to fracture in such a way that they're you kind of lose that critical mass for events to happen and for play to continue and then that looks people will move on to something else and play that instead and it's so you know they they do have to focus on the competitive scene and try to address uh balance issues that come up so i think I, again, as as we said before, I I don't think the core rules of Ninth Edition are bad. I think core rules of Ninth Edition are fantastic. We've taken a look at them. They fixed some of the things that we noticed were missing in Eighth Edition. They mm-hmm. aren't really any more complex than like the one page rules version of of this game that somebody's put together. So it's like Ninth Edition is fine. It's the it's codex design has been the biggest 
culprit, I think, as far yeah. as as pushing the, that complexity to a point where it gets uncomfortable for people. Well, and, and I think this that's also where I'd kind of push back from saying it's, you know, they're catering too much to the, to the competitive players because if you look at where all that complexity in the codex comes in, it's to try to cater to, like, players that like the fluff, keeping options that existed before, keeping armies, keeping units available, keeping them viable because they were in previous editions – and our previous, you know, editions of the book. So it, we're, we're going to go into it a little bit more with this, with the guard codex. They took some options away and you're going to hear a lot from people saying like, oh my gosh, this, this option went away. Why is that? Now this, you know, this book sucks. I don't like it. So I think GW is in a very interesting position because they've built their, their entire like company around the fluff and the, the setting and they want to give players as many options as possible, but they also understand, like what you're saying, that that having a, a vibrant uh, competitive scene and match play scene like is important. So they have to balance making cool things and also like supporting it legacy options and trying to keep some semblance of game balance. And that's a it's a really hard task. Oh, absolutely. And then you throw in beyond that the desire to sell miniatures. And mm-hmm. which is also why we see like, you, you know, models disappearing because they don't have like they've either never had an official model or they don't make that official model anymore. And that's frustrating as well. And which then impacts unit choices, which may turn off a player who has an established army. Hey, like people who have uh, Terminator squads with all dual lightning claws. I know. I can't imagine anybody that would have that. <laughs> no, no. I can, you, me My neither. space will still have that. Shut up. <laughs> Shut it. <laughs> Just move back to Loyalist and you'll be fine. Uh, don't want to play Loyalist. Um, I guess I could play Dark Angels, but anyway, sorry. <laughs> I thought you said you wanted to play... You didn't want to play Loyalists. And, and how is that? See, they're, see, they're the, see they're the... Dark Angels are great because they get all the Loyalist rules, but they're not actually Loyalists, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On one hand, I hate your false emperor. On the other hand, I really like my dual lightning claws. I'm going to have to think about this for a bit. <laughs> it's okay. My Primarch's still a tank. I'm still waiting for him to come back. <laughs> and now your Primarch's not even the biggest tank. So <laughs> so, so, what we've learned, heresy is is rejecting the use of dual lightning claws. Yes. Yes. yes that's that, I mean, it's really what it comes down to. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so focusing the support of the game towards the greater community. I, so here's here's the other bit about that. Like in all senses, competitive play. Like when I and when I say competitive player play, I mean people who regularly attend tournaments, whether that's art local RTTs or traveling to play at like GT or major level events or super majors, things like that, is actually a very small fraction of the community. There's a lot of people mm-hmm. who play matched play because that's the kinds of games they can get at local stores. Cause tournament players will also play like pickup games and things like that. But the people who are regularly attending tournaments, they're a very small fraction of the greater community. And I don't think by trying to make sure that the game works at that level, they're necessarily doing a bad thing. I, and again, I think the game would have been fine with simpler codex design, 
I do think I think basically that's where things went off went off the rails as far as I'm concerned and they're kind of starting to to reel it back a bit um but as far as supporting the game for the greater community the the greater community has been playing 40k regardless it's just finding you have to find a group that's going to play the kind of way you want and um from like Dustin's ma- mail a lot of his playing is focusing on is like going to events because that's where he's getting in games, which means mm-hmm. he is forced to engage with the competitive community and is seeing the game through that lens. And it is the one of the most visible ways to play because it's really easy to find find information about that event where there's like 200 people playing or even like 60 to 80 people playing. That, that gets a lot of coverage in the 40K community. You don't hear a lot about the people playing in their basement for fun. You know, you don't hear about the casual gamer who's, like, been working on their insert Space Marine, you know, chapter X here and has just been working on that for, like, the last decade and really only plays with a couple of friends who, like, they've got, like, a little play group that they play maybe, like, once a week or every couple of weeks. You don't hear about that. And they may not care at all about the match play changes. They may not, they may just be playing stuff straight out of the codex and the, the core rule book. And that's also perfectly fine. And in fact, there's way more of those people than there are the tournament players. And so it just, it's easy to see things as only being for the competitive community because they're the most visible. Uh, the readability of the rules issue, uh, there's a lot of solutions for that. Again, we're going to tout uh, Arbiter Ian's video on open play and ways to like make the game simpler without changing the core rules at all. Um, like there's plenty of ways to play. It's, it's finding that group and it's, and when you're not feeling motivated, it's hard to want to even go find that. Um, and so it's like, I know we've get we've also gotten a lot of letters recently about like people hitting burnout. And that is and that's also not unusual as we're getting near the end of a the edition's uh, life cycle. We saw it with mm-hmm. 7th edition. We I don't know if we quite saw it as much in 8th edition. Uh, although I think there were people that were getting bored of 8th edition more than anything. Um 9th edition has been hard because there were some fundamental changes, especially to matched play scoring, that uh, not all factions played equally in that space. They've tried to get better at that by, like, adding more missions to, like, Nephilim for, you know, armies that didn't have codexes at the time. And, of course, at this point, all of those armies have now been released. So, like, that's they've, – like, they've done what they can, but if if engaging with that is is not – not doing it for you then yeah it's easy to just feel like yeah i'm just i'm not motivated i think i'm just going to take a break and as we've said before that's okay there's nothing to feel bad about there uh do i think they need to uh refocus how the game is is built and played sure i don't think they're going to do that before a new edition and i hope that it's like I'm of two minds. Like in some cases, I think there's some drastic changes that need to be made, especially as far as like stratagems and some of the army rules go. But at the same time, I feel really bad for like guard and world eaters players, because that means they basically get no time to play with their books before they're gone. (laughs) Yep. So bloated response to a bloated transmission. There you go. It's just, we're covering a lot of ground (laughs) here. 
Um, I don't think ninth edition, I think ninth edition at its core is a fine rule set. Um, I just, and I, I will say, I think this guard codex is one of the more user friendly ones as, cause it doesn't have a lot of weird rules layered on top of things. Uh, it feels like comparing it to the, the previous guard codex, it's even a bit simpler, you know, it, it so it's like, I kind of like the design that we're seeing on that. I like the design that I saw on demons, um, Chaos Space Marine f- felt fine. I There was just like, they, they've tried, I would say Games Workshop has tried a lot of different things, and I don't think all of them have worked, but I would rather see them experiment and fail than not experiment at all. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a weird space to be in. I think they've tried a lot of things in ninth edition, and not all of them have panned out, but they tried a lot of stuff in sixth and seventh edition, and not all of that panned out, and we still made it through, so... Um, we'll see what 10th edition looks like. I'm, I know there's been a lot of rumors, but I don't want to lean too hard into any of them until we have something more concrete. All right. Next up is a letter from Way Sikorsky. Way writes, uh, Dear Preferred Think Tank, after all the ideas and brainstorming around stratagems and data sheets, it brought my thoughts back to an age-old prediction. The new edition will be the end of I Go, You Go turns. I have followed 40K since 3rd edition, and every time a new edition is due, people make this claim. However, it never comes to pass. In fact, I remember the fake edition that spread throughout the internet that featured this as a core change. 10th edition is quickly approaching, and this once again climbs onto many gamers' wish list of changes, and GW will once again hold fast. My question for all of you is, why do you think 40K remains an I-go-you-go game? Regards, John. Which, he signs it John, his name is Way, John Way. John Way, we're going to go, you are now John Way. That's what we're just going to go with. Um, So, uh, first, to define that term for anyone who's unfamiliar with it. An I Go, You Go game is a game where when players take turns, I go, I do all the things on my turn. Then when I'm done with all of my stuff, then you go and you do all the things on your turn. And then we start another round and we do one player does their entire turn, one player, the next player does their entire turn. That's an I go, you go game. Uh, to contrast that with other games such as like bolt action or one page rules, uh, there are games with what would be called alternating activations where some way is determined who gets to perform an action first and then like I'll move a unit. Now you move a unit like and maybe that's alternating activations per phase like uh, kill team has done the like I'll move all my I'll move a stuff then you move stuff then I move stuff then you move stuff. Okay. Now shooting. I shoot something, you shoot something. I shoot something, you shoot something. Or it may just be I'm going to move this unit and shoot with it. You do a move your model and shoot with it. Okay, I'm going to move this model and go fight with it. That would be an alternating activation game. So the question is, why is 40k I go, you go, and not activating or alternating activations? Size of games. Like that's, I think that's legitimately it. I think it's just the size of the games. Um, the other games that you mentioned are usually that have alternating activations are usually skirmish level games. So you're dealing with, you know, you know, ten models on a on a table or a few units, something that's on the scale of 40k it's it's becomes very very difficult to do uh, an alternating activation system even though i think there are ways they could do it it's it's a big shift away and it's a big 
we complain about like all the bookkeeping in 40k now like you'd have to like figure out a way to be able to track what units have moved what units have activated it yeah i don't know it's i think there's ways you could do it but i i think that's the biggest barriers that size of the games um number of units number of models involved um and every time gw has tried to shrink the size of the game the player base has kind of revolted so i i don't know i don't think it's going to happen anytime soon i I think you're on to that as well kevin is i I remember we tried to get thousand point games i thought that was what i was going to focus on in this edition but every time i'd go to a, a store or anywhere it was always um they were always playing 2000 point games so that jumped it back up to that and i do think at thousand point games maybe even 1500 you could maybe introduce that because you'd have fewer units Mm because that that's the key either that or maybe gw will do it if they can like sell a bunch of tokens to like (laughs) designate people have gone i mean uh, but uh, i know we've played a bunch of like we played mercs that was one of i love that and the i go or not the i but the alternating turns I thought made that game a lot more interactive. And I think GW tried that a little bit with the alternating deployments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those have stuck around, but I think some people still prefer the one person deploys the entire army than the other person. But I do think that the alternating deployments makes it feel a little more balanced because you can kind of at least see a small picture of what the opponent's doing rather than if you go second you can see exactly what where they've set up mm-hmm. um as far uh, as i think another thing about alternating activations and why it tends to work for smaller games is because it does take longer just like alternating deployment takes longer alternating activation takes longer because you can't just like okay i'm gonna do this then this and this like you you have to jump back and forth brain space um you you lose a little bit of momentum and it's not a lot slower but it adds up um and the like even the larger games like uh bolt action is kind of at a like a platoon level game Mm. uh one page rules is technically like they have their like grim firefighter like yeah like grim future version or grimdark future which is basically ninth edition with the serial numbers filed off and it does alternating activations and one of the things about that is the way the one page rules points out all their their units ends up being like two to three times more expensive than the equivalent thing in like games workshops rules so by the end like a two thousand point army in that game is really only a thousand points at most in uh, in 40k so again you end up with a smaller army which is easier and you still have other balance issues that you have to work in like the fact that um in an alternate activation game uh what if somebody is playing knights and unless they're playing a knight and a whole bunch of armagers which admittedly is the style right now um if you're playing like three or four big knights and somebody's playing uh a whole bunch of let's say somebody's playing like swarm tyranids like somebody's going to have way more activations than somebody else and so there's not that not that that's an insurmountable issue don't don't take me don't don't mis, misunderstand it's just that it's another thing that would have to be taken into account as far as balancing um so how that would work out isn't as clear whereas as you as you pointed out Kevin a lot of the games that do alternate activations these days do tend to be skirmish level or at least mm-hmm. smaller scale games where it's easier to manage um, also, 
as much as people love the idea of switching to alternating activations, and I admit, I think it would be a good alternative to the stratagem aspect to keep people engaged throughout the entire game. Because I've heard people say that, too. That's like... I like I tried getting my kid into the game and like for small games it was fine and then we started playing larger games and he got bored waiting for me to finish up my turn. Um it does help with like engagement. But let's also remember that anytime there is a a major shift away from that you're going to f- risk fracturing the player base. We've seen it before, we will see it again. And I go, you go, as much as people say they hate it, is kind of what we would call a sacred cow. Um, game design, like in a game design sense, it's one of those things like, it's always been this way. We can't get rid of it. It's like trying to get rid of armor class in uh, D&D. You could do it. There's plenty of ways to, to figure out if you hit somebody without dealing with armor class. But And they've even changed how you determine whether you hit someone or not. But you're always going to have armor class because that's... You just do. That's just part of the thing. Um, and I think if you change this up for every person who's really going to like the idea of alternating activations, you're probably going to get somebody who's absolutely going to hate it just because, well, that's not how I play 40. You know, that's that's not the game I want to play anymore. So it, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. And in a case like that, it unless you have a clear vision for what you want to do to make the game more accessible, such as the switch from like seventh to eighth edition, where they're like, we're going to simplify the data sheets. We're going to consolidate rules, things like that. Like a change, like going to an alternating activations format, which I would be completely in support of. uh, It it has to be done properly. It has to be done very carefully. And I would say that while there's nothing necessarily inherently in the rules that would make it problematic other than like fights first thing rules and things like that. Um, it would be very hard to just like layer that on top of the existing rule set without having some knock knock on effects that would be a night, a little bit of a nightmare to balance. So uh, why do they remain as an I go, you go game uh, size of the game. And I think because it's easier for them to work with because for this game design, it's, what's been established for a long time and it would be a quite an undertaking to undo that again like i said though i'd be all for it i love the bolt action style of activation where it's not even necessarily alternating it's you have 10 units i have seven units we put 17 tokens of the appropriate colors in the bag and then we just draw them and figure out who gets to move a unit next and that's a really cool way to do it too I don't think that would work well for 40k either because of some of the inherent imbalance in unit mm-hmm. quality. Whereas in yeah. like bolt action, everybody's just humans with the same kind of gun for the most part. So it's a yeah, very different, very different balance uh, considerations there. All right, next up, a letter from Alex Self. Alex writes, Hey, hey, from down under, question for the show if you're still of a mind to accept them. We are. I am really regretting my Gene Stealer Cult army purchase. <laughs> I wanted something different. I've only ever played Imperial Armies, but it's just not working for me. I'm struggling just with the idea of how the low ballistic skill, low save, glass hammer kind of gameplay, and I can't find a paint a scheme that both looks good and is simple to paint, it being a horde army with such detailed minis. How long do you give an army you're struggling to enjoy before you just give it the knife to ensure it isn't just a blue patch? Do you sell or put it on the shelf to see if you'll like it in the future? 
How do you try and ensure that a new project clicks before you really invest in it? Ooh, that's a good question because I think we've all been in that space. <laughs> I think we've all. I have one right now that's sitting on the shelf. I mean, <laughs> Death Watch, I am very, very much disappointed in. Um, I ha- like when it came out, I was so excited. I got my built an entire watchtower, built the squads like paper wise, and then I built the kits to match each character in the each team but then as they played okay they weren't that great i kind of got bored with them on the tabletop but not as i I still enjoyed the fluff so i instead i just put them on the shelf then when the next edition came out they got their primaris thing they got more rules to incorporate the primaris and i i just lost interest i did not I bought a little bit of the primaries to put in there, but I already had the squads how I wanted them. Adding new squads just kind of felt weird. Although I guess Barcelona call was like saying, Hey, you need these use them. And so I'm like, Oh, well, I guess we got to fit them in the rank somehow, but I didn't feel like it. So it's on the shelves. I've actually briefly contemplate if I sold any army, it would be them, but I just don't sell armies really. So, <laughs> They're still there waiting for when I'll get back to them, if I will. Um, yeah, and I know for me, I have actually hit this spot at least once. Um, actually, probably twice. Uh, first off was um, early on in playing 40k, I was playing Tau pretty regularly. And especially in like 4th edition Tau, when we didn't have a lot of the suit options we have now... Uh, Tau gameplay was pretty much the same every single game. And I wanted something that was going to be a a departure from that. So I decided, well, I'm playing an all-shooty army. I'm going to go completely differently. (laughs) You know this story. (laughs) I'm going to go completely differently. And uh, a friend of ours was selling off uh, some World Eater stuff that he had picked up. So I got like a bunch of corn berserkers and stuff like that. And so I put that together. I was starting to get it painted. I was playing with it on the tabletop. And I think it was probably like three to six months before I just realized this is this is just not clicking for me. This is just not the style of game I want to play. It's like I'm just playing the exact opposite of Tau, but it doesn't have it has even less subtlety than than the Tau one. So like this is not what I'm looking for at all. And so fortunately I knew a su- I mean a, somebody else who was yeah, going interested. <laughs> you found somebody someone else. you found someone who was not, in, not who didn't care about lack of subtlety. <laughs> right. <laughs> And uh, as the person who ran what uh, forty berserkers and like eighty cultists in the narrative event, so yeah, <laughs> hey, I, I did. You, you beat me. <laughs> I, I did win a couple games. I killed. I either table or got tabled in every game. A lot of stuff died. A lot of stuff. <laughs> yes, died. but it was it it that was the gameplay style that clicked for you. But it was totally not for me. So I did. I found somebody who I knew who would be interested in trying that. So, um, I would say, yeah, if three to six months of, of regular play is just like, you're not finding that hook that appeals to you, then I think at that point, shelving or selling the army is totally fine. Like I, I wouldn't do it any sooner than three months. Cause that's not a lot of time to, to really make peace with the army. It's also going to be based on how often you play, 
But from a, a gameplay standpoint, if the gameplay is just not clicking for you and uh, the and, and then on top of that, you're having trouble coming up with like the aesthetics of the army that is something you're going to have you're going to enjoy painting and like so you can't even enjoy it from a hobby level because there's definitely going to be armies like ah, I don't like how this army plays but man I love how it looks and I enjoy painting them that's also totally fine and those are armies that you keep and you just put on the shelf and maybe you have them available in case somebody comes over and wants to get a game and it's like hey you want to try this army out I've been working on them I don't really play them but they you know maybe it's your kind of thing but if an army is just not clicking with you from a gameplay or a hobby standpoint, I'd say three to six months, like especially after about six months, if it's not working for you, it's fine to let it go. It is totally fine to sell it or shelve it and just know that like, yeah, that wasn't for me. And like I mentioned, this has happened a couple of times. I kind of feel that I got that got to that space, even with my black Templars. I enjoyed doing the hobby on my black Templars. I, was adding stuff to my Black Templars up till, you know, like I was working on stuff like flyers and things to add to my Black Templars. But once I got like, like pretty much everything I needed for the 2000 point list I was going to run at the time, I played it solidly for the better part of a year. And it was okay. But again, like purely assault armies or assault focused armies just don't click for me. And so like, I was like, Oh, this one will be different than the corn berserkers. And in the end, no, it wasn't. So uh, that was an army. We ended up adding some stuff to and putting up for charity. Uh, and I'm glad, so, I'm glad it went to somebody else and see if they can enjoy it. I think that person has since gone on to play age of Sigmar. So I don't know if that says anything or not, but <laughs> But yeah, I, I'd say like giving an army a solid six months is is a fair time, and, and like moderate how much you buy of an army like that. Like, don't go all in and buy all the things, and then discover you have buyer's remorse. Although I have been buying a lot of Slanesh Demon stuff lately, and I that may have been a bad decision. I don't know yet. Mm. Probably, since they are very much also assault-focused. True, but at least with a Slanesh Demon army, I can run 25% of them in an Emperor's Children list and bring up the shooty part that I like, so I can actually balance it a little bit. And you can Uh, also throw in a Chaos Knight into the Emperor's Children's list as well. This is true, or into a Chaos Demons list. So it's like I've got yeah. that. That's so one of those three cases. codexes, just like me. Oh, yeah. See, <laughs> but no, that's one of those cases where it's like, okay, as I'm, if I'm not running this as my pure army, but it's kind of an ancillary, something I can add on or run by itself. That's somewhere where I can go a little bit differently with it. But but if it was going to be something I'm running as like my main army, it's like ah, I'm buying. I bought Gene Steeler Colts. I'm going all in. I'm that's what I'm going to play, and I hate it. Um, then. Yeah, it's fine if you don't already have something that you that you like better, it's totally fine to shop around, see if you can sell off what you have and and pick up something new. And I think I'd say I would say 6 months is is more than enough time to give an army a fair shake if you're getting in some regular play with it, doing some regular hobby time on it and just not mm-hmm. enjoying it in any way. Yeah, it's supposed to be an enjoyable hobby. So if you're not getting getting your joy out of out of an army it's perfectly fine to move on um, oh yeah 
I always I always specifically try to focus on armies and models that I like rather than like models and armies that are good because the game shifts so much back, you know, new codex comes out, meta shifts, you know, army being particularly powerful and good is, you know, that, that always varies. So I like looking at like, okay, I like this model. I want to paint this model. I want to build this model. I want to build these kits. I have a cool conversion idea. Things like that at least gives me, you know, at least like that, that element of joy out of it where it's like, okay, this army might sit on the shelf for a while because I don't particularly like the play style right now. But that playstyle might change, or it may come back around to it. Yeah, it's like if you if you enjoy an army, yeah, don't don't look at it from the sense of of winning losing. But if but if it's a matter of the style of game is not clicking, that's that's a yeah. different thing entirely. Yeah. And that's and it sounds like that's more the case here, where it's like the 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 way the army plays is just not meshing. And like I would I would also probably be very hard pressed to get into Gene Steeler Colts. And it's one of the more finicky armies to play. I mean, Richard, I'd say you would agree with that. Yeah, definitely. Like, play-wise, they are kind of an advanced army. So Mm -hmm. you kind of have to do, have to be, like, all in all aspects of that army and to, to really be able to get the most out of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so it's... Yeah, if it's if it's not clicking, it's not clicking. Um, yeah, don't feel bad about about regretting that purchase and and wanting to find something new to play. Um, just and, and but also there there's value in playing something and realizing it is not your style of play. So that get, lets you make a more informed decision on what kinds of things you do want to play. So it's like for me, playing an all assault army is not a good thing for me, but playing an army that has, that's more well-rounded does work for me. Like I love assaulting in my emperor's children army, but I also like that I have decent shooting to back it up with. And I enjoy playing around with like the fluff of that army as well. And I like the color scheme because it's obnoxious and pink. (laughs) And so just like, you know, Kevin, you enjoy playing your like, your world eaters because like you get to do fun things with like conversions and just make them bloody and messy and just go all in on it. So like, even if you're not necessarily winning with it, it's a style of gameplay and a style of hobby that works for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, Alex, don't feel bad about that. Give it a, you know, if you've given it a good solid six months and it's just not clicking for you, let it's okay to let it go. And then finally, our last letter, which is also talking about uh, time frame and such, is from Will McLeod. Will writes, Hey, preferred enemies, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I love listening while painting and assembling minis, so thank you for making such a great podcast. Thank you, Will. Uh, I'm getting into 40k with a few armies, a Necron Force and a Chaos Space Marine Force, both almost 4,000 points. You're getting into it with 4,000 points each. Oof. Those seem like Uh, small armies. Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Additionally, I'm trying to get a Chaos Army as well as a Retro Marines Malevolent Army. Despite the collection, however, I'm quite a noob when it comes to the actual playing of the game, and I tend to make a lot of mistakes and forget a lot of unit abilities. But my question is, how do I get better at playing? 
I play every so often with a friend who collects Death Guard and Ultramarines, and I want to get better at crushing him. What are some tips and tricks for getting better at playing, especially when you don't play regularly? I was thinking about writing down good stratagems to use on certain units and perhaps playing practice games against myself so I can get a good feel for how each unit works. Any tips? Thank you very much, Will. Um, We've mentioned this before, and I'll say it again. Play more. Play more. Play regularly. That's how you get that's how you really get to know an army now that said playing practice games against my uh, against yourself that sounds like dennis's tournament of champions that he had it did work almost <laughs> i mean the two things he he said here i think are, are dead on is well number one what you said rob is play more but if you don't have people to play against definitely play against yourself and you can go a lot slower, look things up, um, learn the rules that way, see what situations come up that you can interact with. Um, and yeah, I also made cheat cards. I mean, the cards they have for stratagems also help, but sometimes it's nice to like have a, like your own note card that says, here's the things to be aware of, here's what you're watching for. It's kind of like a, a reference card that will help you learn, I guess, sort of like the flashcards back in the day when I was a kid at school stuff. But um, the downside of this, though, that I I've ran into, which you might if you're trying all four of these armies, is I could tell the armies I cared about more. I tended to retain the rules better. The armies that I was just like, oh, this, they're, they're losing. I'm not going to actually play them. I tended to forget or not play some other rules when i went back after the game and thought about things so it, it it's best to play but it's also best to focus maybe on one or two to really get those ones down and then once you've got those go to the other since you've listed four mm-hmm. i know i i tried to do what eight and that was yeah. <laughs> it's hard too many <laughs> i should probably should have list, limited it to four maybe six but definitely two or three I retained a lot more than the others, which were also the ones that were my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. I would say a couple, yeah, a couple of those notes of, yeah, definitely focus on one of those armies. So like he's got Necrons, Chaos Space Marines, Chaos Knight Army, Retro Marine, you know, doing a Marines Malevolent Army. Start with the Necron Force. You got 4,000 points of Necrons. You've got more than enough to, to pick and choose Put together one list of Necrons. Play that list. Learn what works. Learn what doesn't. Play multiple games with that list. You play every so often. It's going to take you a while. Um, just play that thing over and over. Um, yeah, take down notes. Um, a couple things you can do that help. Uh, uh, stratagem cards are very good to have. When I'm playing... like. I'll, when I was playing my Tau at the in Crusade, or when I've been playing my Emperor's Children, like at the Friendly, I will have out the stratagem cards just that I'm likely to mm-hmm. use in that game. Like, ha- like so instead of that entire deck, I've got like six or seven out in front of me, so I know exactly what my options are and I can see them. Uh, that that's really good. I will reference my data sheets. Um, something I recommend highly if you use Battlescribe, and you should because it is more accurate than the Games Workshop app. As much as I like, I like the layout of the Games Workshop app. The data is still not, it's still not all there. Use Battlescribe, especially now that the developer is working on it again. 
put together your list roster in Battlescribe, and then go search for Pretty Scribe online. And it's basically a website you can you take the roster file that you've saved for your army, you upload it into Pretty Scribe, and it will put out an easy to read army list that has the data sheets set up the way they are in the codex has it'll have all the rules listed so like if you've got a warlord trait and a relic on somebody it'll have the warlord trait and relic on that car- that unit's data sheet it's really easy to follow and there's an additional feature that that has that I haven't seen anyone else offer and I really like it there's a checkbox you can mark and it can say list out abilities by phase and it'll put a list together on like either the first or the last sheet of the army that lists out, breaks out like movement phase, like command phase, movement phase, psychic phase, shooting phase, things like that. And it'll list like what army wide rules you have or what unit rules you have that will go on those phases. And so that will give you your cheat sheet. It gives you the data sheets for just the units you're using, the rules that you selected for those units. So you don't have to go back and forth to the codex. And it will give you a list of, like, this is all the stuff, like, when you're going through the turn, this is when you can do it. You have that for this one list, this one, let's say, 2,000-point Necron list that you've put together. You build that roster. You print it out from Pretty Scribe, and you use that. And that is your reference. You get out the handful of stratagem cards you're likely to use or that you find yourself using, and you have that. You have created your cheat sheets you have everything you need, play that. If you want to play games against yourself, use that list against a Chaos Space Marine. Maybe make a practice Chaos Space Marine Force that you use. And that's what you practice your Necrons against. You practice your Necrons against your Chaos Knights. Also, if your friend's down with it, switch armies. Let him play your Necrons. You play the Death Guard this time. You play the Ultramarines this time. Have him walk you through what he does with his army and see how he plays your army against them. That'll, that will teach you how he sees your army and what tactics his army is going to use against yours, which will help you figure out, okay, what armies, what units will I need to change out of this list? And what do I need to watch for so I can kind of th- throw roadblocks in front of his tactics? That's the kind of thing. Just repetition, limiting choices down to just like four, you know, focusing, notes, practice, and flip armies from time to time. But always go back to that same list. Play that, like, play that army for like that 2000 point list for like three months. Then, based on what you've learned from those three months, make, make a few changes. Don't try a whole new list. Look at what didn't work. Figure out how to change it from that four thousand point pool of Necrons you've got. Change it up a little bit. Do another three months. It's going to be a process that's going to be frustrating because you're going to want to play those other three armies you have. If you want to get good with one army and you want to beat your your friend regularly, <laughs> th- that's what you have to do. You just have to yeah. put. You have to put in the time. There are, t- there are things you can do to make that time easier, but in the end, it's just like you're going to have to put in the time with that one list and get really good at that one list. You're saying when I use a different army every month for 12 months that I'm not going to get good with any of them? Yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 
I'm just as guilty of it as you are. <laughs> it is it is hard to to not want to jump back and forth between like there's a reason I played my Emperor's Children in one Crusade League and my Tau in another Crusade League because I have a problem and I like to jump back and forth between things. And I'm just finished do well, I'll talk about more in hobby progress, but like I've got several other things that I'm working on and I shouldn't. If I wanted to be a really solid player competitively and like really get used good at beating people i would play one thing regularly and i don't and that's that's a me problem so will i hope that that answered the question of what you can do to get better and again it's focus have a good cheat sheet ready and just repetition those are like those three things will help you learn because it'll take away a lot of the other distractions and let you hone hone what you're doing that, that, that's how you're going to get better, is just that. And if you have a question you'd like us to answer or uh, observations, feedback, uh, corrections, things like that of that nature, uh, there are two good ways to, uh, to get your letter to us. And then there's also Twitter. Um, the <laughs> Right now, I can't recommend Twitter. So, because <laughs> it's currently I mean, I, garbage. I run the Twitter account, so yeah, I can't recommend it either. <laughs> So there's two good ways to get 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 your letter to us. First is email. You can email us at our first names at preferred enemies. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com or our first names, one word, at preferredenemies.com. Second is Facebook. Yeah, you can go to facebook.com slash preferred enemies, like us there, follow us, uh, get updates on when episodes are coming out, what's coming out, things that we're working on. And you can send us messages there. Uh, we take those messages and put them together, get through as many as we can in an episode. I think right now we're pretty much clear. So if you want to get your letter in for the next episode, um, you can do, you know, one of those two ways will really help. Alternately, we do have a Twitter account at twitter.com slash preferred enemy singular, although the way things have been going, who knows for how long. So I can't recommend it <laughs> at the time. At, at time of recording, I cannot recommend it. Also, we are not verified on Twitter. So if anybody sees a weird preferred enemies account behaving strangely, it's probably not us. But I don't think we're big enough for anybody to mock. So I think we're safe. I mean, now that you mention it. <laughs> I, I can recommend Twitter for, like, you know, schadenfreude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fantastic for that right now. <sighs> you want to turn $44 billion into $8 billion? Ask me how. <laughs> <laughs> this, one, this one simple trick. <laughs> Uh, if you want to turn your money into a podcast, into helping us with a podcast, <laughs> though, um, we do have a Patreon. Although, as always, I ask that you use your uh, wargaming powers for awesome and use those funds to help out people in your community first. But after that, if you do want to help support the show, we are at patreon.com slash preferred enemies. Uh, we are basically using that as an online tip jar. We don't lock any of our episodes behind a paywall. We are actually looking at... Um, possibly having a we've actually discussed set finally setting up a discord for our patreon uh subscribers although we'll need to find somebody to moderate it because that is just a thing you have to do for any sort of public facing discord like that so we're still kind of hashing out the details but that is a thing we are working on um 
But beyond that, you uh, your support helps. It pays for our web hosting. It pays for our recording service. It helps re- uh, repair mics. Um, it does help defray travel costs as we are starting to travel to events again. So all of that work really helps support the show and helps us continue to be able to do what we're doing. And so we really appreciate it. But again, uh, even if it's just a dollar a month, enough people put in a dollar, it adds up. And it really does help out. As, like I said, you guys, for our normal operations here at the podcast, we are effectively income neutral. You are covering all the costs we need to continue putting out the show. And we really appreciate it. So thank you. Again, that's patreon.com slash preferred enemies if you want to support the show. Uh, We're going to go ahead and take a break for sponsor identification. And when we come back, we're going to get into our main topic, which is 10 things you need to know about Codex Astra Militarum. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from Game Mat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for our main topic, which is 10 things you need to know about the brand new Codex Astra Militarum. Uh, Again, as we mentioned earlier in the show, this and the entire Cadia Stands box was provided to us by Games Workshop in exchange for a fair and honest review. And uh, so first off, a little bit of back history on um, the Imperial Guard itself, and uh, with the understanding that none of us play Imperial Guard going into this, we've been very clear about this, I don't think we ever discussed the 8th edition Codex, (laughs) we completely dodged that bullet, but uh, we're going to land on, we're going to throw ourselves on this grenade and just go with it. So... Uh, the Imperial Guard, or it is now known the Astra Militarum, because one cannot copyright the phrase Imperial Guard, is 
the the imperial basically the the army of the imperium while we have the space marines acting as very much the special forces shock troops you know tip of the spear of the emperor and the imperium as a whole there's not enough of them to be the entire military of the imperium there's I mean, each chapter of Space Marines is only supposed to be like a thousand guys. There's not enough of them for the billions of planets in the Imperium. And so going all the way back to the Great Crusade, there's always been ancillary troops uh, that have been just normal humans who are just armed with pretty basic weaponry and are there to either follow up the space marines or to accompany the space marines or especially like once the space marines had moved on had moved on to another planet to serve as garrisons and planetary defense forces and things like that and that was the imperial army and has now over time become the imperial guard and falls under the the astra militarum which itself is uh part of the departmento munitorium uh I'm going to direct everyone to another Arbiter Ian video because he just released a like a 20 minute like just this week a 20 minute video on the history of the the in in universe history of the uh, Astra Militarum. It's a really good watch. It covers a lot of the basic background, going again all the way back to the Horus Heresy and before. And uh, so yeah, this is the um, in, this is the army made of. St- actual day-to-day people who are not genetically modified in any real way. Uh, this is the armies that basically serve as the mass of the Imperium's military might, which means you have a lot of standard troops in kind of low-quality gear because they have las guns, which are like the cheapest weapons for the Imperium to reproduce because they have they just use power packs instead of ammunition. And if I remember right from the fluff, like you can recharge power packs by putting them on a bonfire. Like they'll there's they're very simple technology that can be quickly mass produced. Uh, they're using flak armor, which again can be quickly mass produced, which is leads to the joke, uh, the classic joke of guardsmen having a t-shirt and a flashlight. But the Imperial Army is made up of regiments from all over the galaxy. And in fact, individual planets in the Imperium have a tithe that they have to pay as part of their membership in the Imperium. And part of the way they can pay their tithe is through manpower. They can basically raise regiments to send off to be directed to various war zones in the Imperium. And in many cases, they never get to return home. They're just like on tour fighting and fighting and fighting until they're destroyed or completely reconstituted into something else in much the way like the the ship of theseus is like is the 270th cadian really the same 270th cadian that left cadia all those centuries ago because they've been so many people brought in from other regiments to fill holes because uh, the lifespan of a guardsman is not long because this is a quantity over quality army for the most part where you do deviate from that is in their armor. No one brings as much tank and, and other vehicle to the battlefield as the Astra Militarum. And that's what makes up for the overall comparative weakness of, of the infantry. Although, you know, the infantry is still, you know, giving a good fight uh, and are directed by like, you know, there's an entire chain of command and everything, but, uh, but the tanks, 
uh, and, and other vehicles are what another thing the guard is known for, whether it's the, the classic Lehman Russ battle tank or the basilisks like self-propelled artillery or the Hydra anti, anti-air tank or the, the Chimera transport. Um, these are all like ubiquitous, familiar imperial weapon designs, and they are present primarily in the armies of the Astra Militarum. Now, in recent years, storyline-wise, so like at this point, like a hundred years past, because I think they basically fast-forwarded a century after the Gathering Storm storyline. Um, Cadia fell. Cadia was a planet that basically served as the gateway in and out of the Eye of Terror, and so had had millennia of history of raising some of the the toughest most standardized troops for the Astra Militarum to the point that Cadian pattern gear, the Cadian pattern flak armor and las guns were ubiquitous throughout the empires. Like even if you didn't have Cadians, you would have people using Cadian gear who were trained in Cadian in the Cadian style because they was just either they were producing so much of it for, and then other forge worlds were basically using that pattern to be produced or Cadian regiments had gone to other planets and also helped train new regiments. And so, like, the Cadian style of, of military was well represented throughout the Imperium. And so they were a focal point of the various crusades that the that Abaddon would take to break out of the Eye of Terrors and uh, wreak, wreak havoc. And thus, during the final 13th Black Crusade, which culminated in the creation of the Great Rift, he uh, Abaddon and his forces attacked Cadia directly and were actually, for a while, successfully repelled at high cost. And then Abaddon decided to just ram a Blackstone Fortress into the planet. And that finally cracked the planet, which was important because the planet was a source, uh, basically had a lot of uh, Blackstone pillars, which were basically keeping the the warp kind of at bay and so by crashing this gigantic space station into the planet it shattered the planet and kind of broke that that seal and thus the warp ripped out through you know th- across the galaxy and so cadia the planet itself has fallen but cadians have not fallen because again a lot of cadian regiments were not on cadia they were all scattered throughout the imperium so cadia is it to the Cadians, Cadia still stands as long as one of them stands. But besides that, you have all sorts of other regiments that are well known. There's the the regiments from Mordia who are known for their sharp uniforms and their like their classic practice drills and things like that. There's Catachin jungle fighters. There's the Death Corps of Krieg who fight on a deadly irradiated world and basically mimic uh, World War I trench warfare soldiers. There's the Talarn Desert Soldiers, the uh, Steel Legion from the planet of Armageddon. Uh, there's the Tanith First and Only, which uh, follow uh, Commissar Ibram Gaunt. Uh, the First and Only because their planet was also destroyed right after the first regiment of their troops were raised as part of like their one of their first tithes. Didn't go well for uh, Tanith. And so there's a lot of these like regiments of renown, but over time, these regiments get worn down because they are just thrown into meat grinders. And so over time, regiments get merged, they get 
they'll get reinforcements that are like the leftovers of other regiments or like, hey, we just landed on this planet. They're going to pay their tithe here. They're giving you a bunch of soldiers, train them up to fight the way you do. And now they're part of your uh, regiment, even though you're like your Tanith first and only may after, you know, a couple of decades not be that many Tanith anymore, but it's still the Tanith first and only. And so that's, that is what the Imperial Guard is. They are, they are known as the hammer of the emperor, uh, because whereas the, the space Marines are a, a scalpel or a spear tip to, you know, pierce the enemy's defenses and, and kill with a quick short blow, you just bring the weight of the Imperial Guard down upon the enemy and hope that they can just overwhelm them with crushing vehicle firepower and masses of men. It's a very unpleasant way to do warfare, especially for the members of the Astra Militarum, because again, they don't tend to live very long, but you end up with just long, drawn-out campaigns of grueling attrition warfare. Well, it's always funny, too, because like, in larger sci-fi fandoms, you always get the question of like, oh, if you were in this universe, what would you be? You know, how would you be there? And like, you know, in Star Wars, oh, I would be a Jedi or I would do this. And it's like, if you were in the 40K universe, 99% of you are going to be Imperial Guardsmen that die on a planet fighting some alien horror that you can't even comprehend. Like, right. that's just like they are like integral to like the grimdark of the setting, I think, because an individual human's life against any of these forces that you're fighting is like meaningless. But collectively, when you get, you know, a couple hundred thousand of them together with tanks, you might have a chance. Right. And that's not to say there aren't special forces among them. There's an entire branch called the Militarum Tempestus, which are trained alongside commissars, which are political officers of the Imperium to be fanatically loyal, you know, elite troopers that you can like very much special forces style, like drop out of the back of a plane into a target, take it out, you know, do targeted strikes. They're, they're not space Marines. They're just normal humans who just have exceptional training and better gear than everyone else, but they're still normal humans. You know, so it's like they're, they're capable forces, but they still have like high casualty rates. Um, the Acadians had Kasserkin, which basically served kind of the same stormtrooper purpose. And that doesn't even account for the fact, like I mentioned, the commissars briefly, they are political officers that help ensure the zeal and loyalty of Imperial troops and are authorized to shoot you in the back of the head if you try to run or shoot you in the face if you try to run. Like, you will follow orders or I shoot you. It works. It's not great, but it works. Does it, so, though? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they it it tends to work. I sure. mean, <laughs> it, it used to be that that would allow somebody to like re-roll their morale check. Um, now you just can automatically like if a unit fails a morale check, you you shoot that you shoot one guy and then they pass all their combat attrition tests. So it kind of does the same thing. It's like, yeah, you well you fell back. Uh, that one guy died. Uh, the rest of you are sticking around. It's not so much that he ran. It's like I shot him and the rest of you are staying put. So that's commissars for you. <laughs> so there's loyalty, whether it's in ingrained or spread by the preachers that join a lot of regiments or whether it's by fear of taking a bolt gun, like a bolt pistol shot to the head. Because, uh, you know, I imagine blocking detachments are a thing for guard armies sometimes. <laughs> Not, not, it's not a happy place to be. 
And so that that gives us a little bit of the the background of the Astra Militarum. And so let's get into the actual rules things you need to know. So we're going to start with number one, and this is probably the biggest departure from any other codex we have seen in ninth edition. And that is that there are no sub factions in this army. There are only regimental doctrines and there's a standard one that you can just take as the default or you can build your own. There is, and like in the eighth edition codex, you could pick uh, like a particular, like this is going to be my Cadian army. This is going to be my Talarn army. This is going to be my Krieg army. And that would give you a warlord trait, usually a, a relic, like yeah, and like a lot of factions, you would you would have like these things that you get for picking that particular regiment. That is not the case in this codex. And one of the 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 story conceits for that is that armies a lot of times are made of mixed regiments. They like there's not necessarily you're not necessarily playing with like this is the the company of the like the Cadian 105th company. It's like well yeah, I got a couple of tr- I got a couple of squads from the Cadian 105th, but then I've also got like. Uh, vehicle from the uh, Valhalla Ice Warriors, and I've got a unit of Krieg veterans, and I've got um, like I've I've, I've got uh, artillery from Armageddon, stuff like that. It's like it's all mashed together, but they all fight together. And so, to represent that, you choose a regimental doctrine that fits the way you're going to play this guard army. Um, so. There, the two options you have. Well, I say two, but one of those options is build your own. What there's one option you have, which is born soldiers. This is the generic one, which kind of represents the traditional Cadian style. As I said, Cadian style training and gear is kind of ubiquitous, so they're using this as the nice generic option, which is born soldiers, which gives you the born soldiers keyword. It lets you. It lets your officers have an aura that says uh, when any of your platoon units, which is your infantry, uh, with are within six inches of the model, they use the officer's leadership instead of their own. And anytime they make a ranged attack, an unmodified hit roll of six automatically wounds the target. And unlike Votan, those sixes are actually considered sixes still. <laughs> That's lame. Well, they don't have nearly as many things that trigger off of that. There's a couple, yeah. but not near, not to the extent that like the Votan had, where some of their weapon abilities get particularly nasty on sixes. So they have two, and Votan had four. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't think one of those is necessarily and wounds spill over like mortal wounds. So we'll we'll allow it. However, if you don't like born soldiers, if if that's not the style of play you're going for, you can then ensure. Instead, choose to build your own regimental doctrine. And like many build your own faction, you choose two of these. Although there's like one like trophy hunters, which lets you, you cannot select a second one if you pick this one. But um, basically, each of these will give you a rule and some of them add a keyword that's important later. So, for example, let's say you go with mechanized infantry. I want to. I want to have an army that focuses on like guardsmen rolling up in Chimera and Taroxes, which are their dedicated transports, and they like pop out and shoot. Take mechanized infantry units with this doctrine gain the mechanized keyword. Units with this doctrine can disembark from a transport, excluding aircraft, 
and after that, after the model has made a normal move, but if they do so, such units cannot cannot be selected to move again, though they still count as having moved, and neither they nor the transport model are eligible to declare a charge this turn, which is very rare that you're going to want to charge guardsmen ahead, but basically, if you want to pop out after the transport's moved and like get that extra movement and then pop out and shoot while you were safely in your transport... Mechanized infantry would be a perfect, uh, perfect one to take, or maybe armored superiority, which gives you an armored superi- superiority keyword and makes all your vehicles count as three, five, or ten models for holding objectives, depending on the size of the vehicle. Um, you might pick grim demeanor, which is meant to mimic Valhalla's, and you, each of these has flavor text. And a number of them describe like, oh, this is like this regiment. So like, let's say I I like Valhalla and Ice Warriors. I would take Grim Demeanor. Units with this doctrine gain Grim Demeanor. And every time a combat attrition test is taken for a unit with this doctrine, you can ignore any of the any or all modifiers to represent the fact that they don't care if they take if they're below half strength, they're still going to be as likely to run as they were before. You see a lot of that, like Katachin are represented by veteran gorillas, uh, the Death Corps of Krieg is represented by Cult of Sacrifice, Talarn, Swift as the Wind. But again, you don't have to be using that particular regiment to use that style of training. Maybe you're just maybe the Cult of you pick Cult of Sacrifice because that's how, like you're playing a Acadian squad or Catachin squad that's known to throw itself into into combat knowing you know they're willing to die to protect you know to to achieve their their goal you can pick that that doctrine as a style of fighting and you will pick that and one other about not like there's about like six or seven that hand out keywords like that uh and then the other the other ones do not so it's like kind of like keyword keyword ones and then and you can have two that give you different keywords so like it's not like some from column A and some from column B. But it's interesting that like this completely gets past some of the issues we've seen in the past where we've like you've got like one subfaction that's automatically better than everything else because it has a better stratagem or it has a better relic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the previous guard codex, they would have orders, which we'll get to in a second, that were specific to different uh, regiments as well. And those are gone as well. So it's like it's a very different method of approaching building an army and like, and where it does get a little bit weird is how this is going to interact with gene stealer cults because gene stealer cults specify that you replace their regiment keyword with the brood brothers keyword, which these don't have a regiment keyword to replace, but they they do have a doctrine, a regimental doctrine that they say you have to have. So I'm assuming that's going to interact properly because it's the rule has kind of the same naming. But it'll be interesting to see how they erod- they'll have to erode that that those units gain the Brood Brothers keyword instead of replacing a, a regimental keyword that doesn't match. Which also means you can have like mixed guard armies because there's no bracketed keywords like if you're playing competitive play and says yeah you have to replace all your bracketed keywords with the same keyword there's no bracketed keyword to replace in this it's it does not exist in this at all yeah now there are units that will have their own factional keywords like there's a cadian keyword on several units there's a krieg keyword there's a a couple of katachin keywords 
but that you aren't expected to have that army wide. It's just an extra keyword that stratagems will key off of. And we'll talk about that in a bit, but it's, it's a very different way to approach building an army. And also because you've got that default born soldiers one, you don't have to interact with this at all. Like you don't, if you don't want to bother building one, born soldiers is fine. It's a, it's, it's good. Because automatically wounding on sixes, considering you're using las guns, which are like strength three, that's really good to get some automatic wounds on a weak weapon like that. So it's not a bad one to pick if you just want to make a, a quick and dirty guard army. But I do like that they have things like armored superiority for people who want to build like all tank armies and not give up, like to be actually be able to hold objectives. You don't get objectives secured. But you do get, like, your vehicles count as multiple models. That helps. Yeah, I think this is a very interesting system because it reduces a lot of the complexity, but still still allows you to play with the different flavor and the different, you know, the different feel of those different regiments that existed before. So you kind of get the best of both worlds here. You get the flavor with more streamlined rules. And, you know, when's the last time that we saw a codex that had two pages of sub-faction options, you know, like right. the Votan page was, you know, that was like 10 pages in the book because each sub-faction had two pages worth of options. And this is, you know, two pages total. So I do like that they're simplifying that. And I think that might be reading the tea leaves a little bit might be a pointing at where they're heading to with, uh, with 10th edition design. Yeah. Cause that's, that has always been one of the things that has made balancing this difficult is, is dealing with, that kind of like all the possible options. And also we'll get to, when we get to stratagems, you'll see they haven't linked themselves so tightly to this, that it's a pro that like there's a balance problem there. So like these let you do certain things and lets you pick the flavor of guard army you want to have. And this is army wide, by the way, this is not on a detachment basis. This is an army wide decision so you don't have to worry about, well, this detachment has this stuff and that detachment has that stuff and keeping track of what's what. It's like, no, your army either is born soldiers or you have these two of these and that's it. Super easy to manage. Yeah. And then that's going to take us to number two. And that this is the other core part of how this army works. And this is basically a continuation of what it had in 8th edition. This is very easy to understand. I like this system. And what this is, is number two, voice of command is your key ability to pass out buffs. Who gets it and what buffs they get depends on who's giving the order. So a number of units in this army are dedicated, are, are, are marked as officers. They have the officer keyword. Officers know one or more orders or they, or they know they know orders from a particular group and they can hand out like one more maybe more depending on the character they can hand out orders every turn so for example if you're talking about an infantryman an officer can pick out a platoon unit again platoon is a keyword that is a keyword that represents like your infantry squads they can pick out a platoon unit within six inches of them and they can give an order based on what set of orders they know and then that unit just has that ability until your next command phase. If there are also vehicle orders, and so if a commander knows the mechanized order set of 
set of orders. They can pick a squadron unit, which like all the vehicles are marked squadron with that keyword, even if there's only like one unit in the squad within 12 inches and then give one of those orders. So the three kinds of orders that we see, uh, like your standard guard infantry commanders have regimental orders and regimental orders are generally focusing on like making attacks better or giving, making a little bit of your, your existing things better. So, so for example, the classic first rank fire, second rank fire, this is one we see a lot with guard armies in this case. It, it used to turn your weapons from like rapid fire one to rapid fire two. It now makes your, your las gun and hot got hot shot las guns heavy three. So it excuses you from moving, but you get, uh, you get extra shots at full range with, uh, with first rank fire, second rank fire, or maybe tank aim, which adds one to your hit rolls and makes the AP better by one. Fix bayonets. If you're just crazy enough to charge, take cover. If you want to get light cover, if you're already in light cover, you get dense cover. Move, move, move gives you extra movement and lets you advance automatically at sixes rather than rolling. Suppression fire makes your, like, if you can get five or more hits, uh, you have to fire everything at one enemy unit. If you get five or more hits there, that enemy unit is minus one to hit. Like, so these are all regimental orders. So like your platoon commanders give these out. Commissars have a different set of orders called the perfectus orders. Uh, they can also, tar- they also target platoons to give out their orders. Uh, and these orders tend to be more based on giving your army uh, more things to do or more flexibility so, for example, forwards for the emperor lets a unit until the end of your next shooting phase, you pick a unit, and if they moved, they act as being stationary. Let's see, duty and honor, you can let a unit perform actions in a turn and when they fell back, and they can shoot without any of those actions failing. Uh, get back in the fight, lets a unit uh, shoot or charge in a turn which they fell back. At all costs, gives your unit... Gives unit objective secured. If they already had objective secured, it gives them makes the models count as an extra. Each model count as an extra model. That's great. Show them steel. Show them contempt. Adds one to leadership and uh, lets them shrug off mortal wounds on a five up. Or remain vigilant. Uh, enemy units can't be set up as reinforcements within twelve inches. That's a really good one to use if you know somebody's going to be dropping in something near one of your objectives. You've got a commissar back there telling them to keep keep watch. And if an enemy unit uh, declares a charge against them, they can hold steady. If they do, then uh, any Overwatch attacks made by the models in the unit hit on fives. So perfectus orders make your units like better at holding or moving or doing things that those units need to do as opposed to just being attacks better or making attacks better. If you have a tank commander, they can give out mechanized orders, which is they like, they can pick a vehicle and say, pound them to dust. That unit when targeting someone with a blast weapon doubles the number of models in that target unit to determine how many of their blast hits hit. So you pick a unit that has six models in it. Guess what? You get full hits against them because now they count as 12. Uh, full throttle gives them the same thing as move, move, move. Two inches extra movement and advancing uh, automatically advancing with sixes. Gunners kill on shot on sight. Reroll hit rolls of one. Blitz them. Add one to charge rolls. And uh, you get to do mortal wounds to an enemy unit that you charge. Uh, shock and awe. Tank gains objective secured. (laughs) 
which works really well with that uh, armored superiority uh, regimental rule or pinning fire uh, in your next shooting phase. It's basically the same thing as the suppression fire. You can like give a unit a penalty. In this case, it doesn't, uh, it's not a penalty to hit. It, you get five hits on them. It subtracts two from their movement characteristics. So you can slow somebody down with your tanks. Um, so you've got these three different categories of orders. Um, none of these, like, unlike I think going back to like 6th and 7th, or I guess probably like 5th, 6th, 7th edition, you don't roll to see if these go off. These are not like chaplain invocations or anything like that. These these just happen. You just like say, this model, like this officer is giving this squad this order for this turn. That's what that unit, that's what that buff that unit is going to get. Now, a unit can only be affected by one order at a time. So you can't have, like you can't say, all right, the platoon commander orders you to first rank fire, second rank fire, and the commissar says to do duty and honor. So, like, you can shoot without an action failing. You can't do both. It's like, the unit's going to get confused. So, only a unit can only have one order. But there's another rule, and this is the army wide rule regimental tactics. If everything in your army, other than agent of the Imperium and unaligned models, is Astra Militarum, then when an officer issues a regimental or perfectus order to a unit with that ability, with the regimental tactics ability, then if there are other friendly platoon units within six inches of that unit, they also get the same order. So if you have like two or three squads of infantry clumped up, one one officer can give the command to the to like the closest unit and then the two that are to the side of them that might be too far out to get to be within that six inch bubble of giving the order also get the order. Same thing for tanks. If you, if an officer gives a mechan, uh, mechanized order to a squadron within 12 inches, squadrons within six inches of them also get the same order. So if you're playing all guard, you can really maximize how many units are getting the benefits of those orders. There's also two other things that they took into account. One is uh, Vox casters, which is radio units. Uh, this has always been a way to kind of extend that range. And so the way Vox casters work is there are command squads that will have master Voxes. There's one of them included in the uh, Cadian, the Cadia Falls box. It's in the new Cadian command squad. So you've got to, if you have a master Vox on a command squad and you target an infantry squad that also has a Vox caster, you have a 24-inch range to give orders, but just to that unit that has the Voxcaster. After that, normal rules apply, which means the regimental tactics rule would still kick in. So you could have a 24-inch bubble to give multiple units an order if you've got a Voxcaster. So it's it's like it's always to your benefit to have a Master Vox on a command squad and have Voxcasters in your infantry squads if you're using infantry squads. And I don't believe Voxcasters cost anything. Yeah, Canadian, Canadian Command Squad, the Master Vox is free. And on your normal troops, Vox casters are free. There's no reason not to take them. So always take them because they're always useful if you're going to use infantry orders. The other thing is officers in chimeras. Now, traditionally, when a unit is in a transport, they can't do anything. They effectively don't exist on the table. Chimeras have a special rule called... Mobile command vehicle. In your command phase, 
If one or more officer models are embarked within this transport, one of those officer models can issue an order it knows while doing so measure distances to and from the transport model. So you can have your company command squad in a chimera. They don't lose the ability to give out orders. And theoretically, I would think if there's a master Vox in there and you target a unit with a with a Vox caster, you should be able to reach out from that chimera hole and affect that unit as well. So you can really spread out your orders pretty far and keep your company command squad safe and not lose any effectiveness from them. That's really cool. I mean, the two things this reminds me of is the knights get calling out the bondsman abilities to things close that you can then use a stratagem of, or to, to chain or for the Voton having the comms devices that let you get the calls abilities at 24 inches mm-hmm. as opposed to like the six. So it's mm-hmm. neat that they get both. Yeah, very much so. It's yeah. If, and so we see a little bit of that, like the comm system is basically just an advanced version of the Voxcaster that the guard have been using this whole time as well. So yeah, there's there's a you see a little bit of that overlap in and I think it does kind of reinforce that the Votan are an Imperium based army because they use similar communication tools, just probably far more advanced ones. <laughs> now, moving on to number three. I mentioned that uh some of those regimental doctrines give out keywords. That is because number three, stratagems care a lot about keywords, especially the ones handed out by regimental doctrines. So Instead of having faction-specific keywords, or faction-specific, instead of having faction-specific stratagems, there's a lot of stratagems in here that are either going to be looking for particular unit keywords or regiment keywords. Now, there's a couple in here that target Cadia, like Vengeance for Cadia. Use the stratagem in your shooting phase or the fight phase when a Cadian unit from your army or a platoon unit from your army that is within six inches of a friendly Cadian officer is selected to shoot or fight. So even if the whole army isn't Cadian, as long as there's a Cadian giving command, they add one to their wound rolls when making attacks against chaos units because they they want revenge for Abaddon blowing up their planet. But there's also things like ingrained precision. Use the stratagem in your shooting phase when a born soldier's unit from your army is selected to shoot. Until the end of the phase, each time a model in this unit makes a ranged attack, an unmodified hit roll of five automatically wounds the target, and it is considered a six. So it basically makes their born soldier's ability better for one unit. But there's, like, we mentioned that some of those regimental doctrines give give out keywords. So, for example... Let's say you have the uh, the mechanized regimental doctrine, the one that lets you like get out of vehicles after they've moved. Well, there's a stratagem called mount up. Mount up. Use the stratagem in your shooting phase after a mechanized or militarum tempestus infantry from your army has shot. If every model in that unit is within three inches of a friendly transport, they can embark within it. So note. That's not specifically tied to the mechanized keyword. If you're playing with Militarum Tempestus, you can do that with them instead. You don't, you don't lose access to that for not picking the right doctrine. It just becomes more specific. Like this particular unit fights with this style. But if you pick it, pick the uh, mechanized regimental doctrine, everybody in the army fights that way. Or for example, uh, the, Artillery strike requested. So there's an expert bombardiers regimental doctrine, which uh, 
you can add one to hit rolls on artillery if the target's within 12 inches of a vox caster or sentinel unit. So it's like if you have a spotter, you get a better chance to hit with your artillery, which uh, that's kind of cool. And you gain an expert bombardier's keyword. So artillery strike requested, use the stratagem in your command phase if a masters of ordin- master of ordnance or expert bombardier's officer model from your army is on the battlefield. Master of ordnance is a particular model you can add to a command squad. So if you didn't take expert bombardiers, you can still take a particular model and get an access to this stratagem. Or you can just take the expert bombardier's regimental doctrine, which does have an opportunity cost. You don't, you're not able to take born soldiers and you wouldn't be able to, you might lose access to other things, but you gain, you gain access to the stratagem. So having these stratagems accessible from like two or three directions is really cool because it, it gets rid of that. Oh, this is the best fat sub faction or this is the best doctrine to take because this is the only way mm-hmm. you get this stratagem. There's very little of that in here. No, it's a much better and more flexible way of doing it. And like I said, I think it, <clears throat> it signal signals kind of where I think they're heading design wise going forward. I think they're going to give hopefully fewer stratagems, but, um, more options to get to those stratagems. And and I kind of like this tiered system of like, well, if you take this specific option, yes, this becomes easier, becomes more widely available, but you could still take this unit and use it. So no, this is a, this is a good way of designing it. I like it. Yeah. And they even have a couple of stratagems. Like I mentioned, Krieg are represented kind of by the cult of sacrifice. So there's a fire on my position stratagem that says like when a Vox caster model from your melee is destroyed by a melee attack, don't remove that model from play. After all the models in the attacking unit have finished making their attacks, you roll a D six for each unit within three inches of the Vox caster on a four up the unit being rolled for suffers D three mortal wounds. As you call in artillery on you on yourself, as you die, uh, then you remove the Voxcaster model. If the model is from the Cult of Sacrifice, this stratagem costs one CP. Otherwise, it costs two. So it's still accessible to everyone. It's just a little bit cheaper. Mm-hmm. It's easier to use if you're playing that particular doctrine. But anybody can use it. They just pay a little bit more. I really like this style of design. It do- It provides what uh, you might call niche protection. Like... These particular styles of gameplay get easier access to these stratagems, but it's not a lockout. You you can still use yeah. them. You just have it. Just you have to be a bit more specific with your ar- army building and maybe spend a little bit more command point wise. But it's a really, I really like how they've designed this. So yeah, I'm hoping this is kind of a, a sign of things to come. Uh, as at least from a balance standpoint, it seems like it's easier to balance this when these are things that these are tools that are available to everyone and not just mm-hmm. the best build or the best sub faction. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of competitive builds and competitive rules, that takes us to number four. Most of the balance data slate changes have been rolled into this book, but there's two important ones missing. Now, uh, if this is going to be the way they're going to start handling uh, Age of Sigmar stuff, for example, when they dropped the Slaves of Darkness box, they did say that, like, yes, this Battle Tome is available now, but we're not going to allow you to play this army competitively until we ha- until it's available for general release. And I'm hoping they do the same for 40k. Uh, but in the meantime, 
there's a lot of changes in the balanced data slate for guard that were there to bring guard up to a level where they could hang with other armies because they definitely were struggling. And I'm wondering if that's kind of leading into some of the issues that like Dustin was having in his letter about like, cause he's primarily a guard player and it's kind of hard to be motivated for guard. It's kind of like being motivated for Tau before their codex came out. I wasn't, mm-hmm. I didn't want to play them. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of changes from that balanced data slate that have been rolled in. So for example, the data slate had the hammer of the emperor ability. If every unit from your army has uh, Astra Militarum, uh, inclu- excluding agent of the Imperium, run line units, and every regiment unit in your army is drawn from the same regiment, then each time you make a ranged attack, an unmodified roll of six automatically wounds the target. Uh, that's born soldiers. That That's the born soldiers ability right there. Um. Change the save characteristic of Astro Militarum Lehman Rust models and Astro Militarum Titanic models to two up. I can tell you, every Lehman Rust, every battle tank in here has a two up armor save. Every Titanic has a two up armor save. So that's been rolled in. And then, uh, then when using, uh, the tank orders ability of a tank commander, you can select a friendly vehicle unit within six inches of that regiment tank commander instead of selecting a, uh, Lehman Rust unit. Um, the, uh, the mechanized orders can be given to any vehicle. So like that's, that is still true. Uh, and the, uh, when somebody uses voice of command to somebody, they can, of their regiment, they can give that order to regiments on either side of them. That's been rolled into the regimental tactics rule. So those are, those rules that we see here are all part of the codex, which makes me think they knew that this was coming so it was kind mm-hmm. of a way to to make that available and see how guard played, maybe play test a little bit with how guard were playing with those. Now, there's a couple of things, though, that I haven't mentioned. First off, the Armor of Contempt rule, which was applied recently to Astra Militarum vehicles, which reduces the AP of incoming attacks by one. That's not in here. At all. <laughs> Nor should it have been. <laughs> I mean, we can have that that that's its own debate. Right. But there's a yeah. <laughs> but just like we didn't see it in the uh Chaos Space Marine Codex either. Sure. Like that Armor of Contempt is something that has been applied after these books, I think, were written and originally playtested. So we do not yeah. see that reflected in here. The other thing we do not see reflected in here is the indirect fire rule, or specifically the fact that Astro Militarum units that use indirect fire ignore it. Yeah, no, that one should be FAQ'd in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised to not see that one because that's kind of their thing. But it's weird. To, it would be weird to FAQ. You'll have to FAQ it in rather than put it in the rule book because you'd be referencing a rule that doesn't exist in any print rule book. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing in indirect fire rules aren't in the core rule book. And that that's, I think, a weakness of the core rule book. And I'm glad like I don't mind the indif- indirect fire weapons rule here. I do think it should be in the core rules. And having the guard exception for it totally makes sense, but there's nothing in here that represents that. So we'll have to see what happens after this codex is out and we get like the next quarterly uh, balanced data slate and see if that continues to be the case. I hope it does because I think it makes sense for guard. That's like indirect fire is kind of one of their big things. They're they use the most artillery, mortars, etc. They should have that bonus. They just don't right now, or they might. We don't know. (laughs) No, I completely agree. Like that's something that definitely should still be in there. The armor of contempt rule for their vehicles 
and and as the next thing you're going to mention, but like with other rules and some of the changes they've made, making the vehicles tougher, making the armor saves better, the armor tracks rule, I don't think they need it. And I I thought it was always kind of a weird patch to give it to their vehicles anyway, because like, you know, it, it, it was weird to only apply just to like their vehicles. Um, you know, when it was really meant to be, or at least kind of explained initially as like a, we're trying to, you know, make space Marine armor better. Um, so I think it may have, I think as you mentioned, it may have been a thing where they were trying to kind of get out in front of rules that they knew were coming. So we'll apply this rule, which gives them a effective version of what they're going to get when they get their own codex. Yeah, because the the extra rule that's in here is all the ve- all the non super heavy vehicles can take the uh, can take an upgrade to give them armored tracks. And armored tracks basically set, it's like a five point upgrade. I think the only unit that comes with its stock is the Tarox, as far as non super yeah. heavies. But the armored tracks rule basically says you gain the armored keyword, which there's a couple of stratagems that key off of that. And each time a range attack with damage characteristic of one is allocated to the bearer, add one to the armor saving throw made against that target. Which does mean if you take that, those vehicles would lose armor of contempt because it modifies the – well, no, it doesn't modify the armor produ- armor penetration. It increases the armor save, which same effect, but – different way of wording it. So yeah, they'll have to see yeah. how they applies. But the idea that like this protects your vehicles from small arms fire, but not against something that's dedicated anti-armor. It's a better mm-hmm. way to do it. Making an optional caught co- that you can spend the points on if you want, but you don't have to, um, I think is a better way to handle it. All the super heavies have it on there for free. It's just a stock rule, which makes sense for the super heavies. They should shrug off small arms fire like that. Absolutely. So I think it's like, I I would be fine with guard vehicles losing armor of contempt as somebody who plays a chaos space Marine army. I'm still, even though I have armor of contempt, I'm kind of not a fan of it. So I would be fine with it going away. Um, So I think this is a better way to handle it. So we will have to see whether they will continue to have armor of contempt after this and whether armor of contempt will be allowed in addition to armored tracks because they are different ways of approaching the same thing. And the way the rules are currently written, they would not interact. Yeah. They would like, it would not shut down our armor of contempt. And I think it absolutely should. If you take that upgrade. All right. Let's start talking about actual units. So number five, there's a lot of shakeup in the HQ department. Some classic favorites are gone. There's a few new faces and some interesting add-ons. So the first thing you're going to notice looking through this is there are a number of characters in here who are just not here anymore. Knight Commander Pask, the named Cadian tank commander. He's not in here. He is mentioned in the fluff section. I, I think he's kind of retired. Because it doesn't it does not say that he's dead. He's still around. He's he's just not represented by rules. There's already a tank commander. You don't there's no way to make pass a particular tank commander. Ursakar Creed. Um he's currently in Trazen's uh collection, so he's not around right now. Commissar Yarik is dead. He's officially dead. He gets he gets a whole page on uh, De Gloria Yarik and and a 
and a picture of his corpse. <laughs> so Commissar Yark is officially gone. So all these characters are removed for story reasons. There's also a couple of things that are just not in here anymore. Uh, so for example, in the 8th edition codex, you could have a platoon commander as just a single mo- model by himself. Not an option anymore. You can have a platoon command squad, but not a platoon commander solo. Uh, the Lord Commissar is no longer an option. If you wanted to have a commissar leading your army as an HQ choice, you can't apart from one particular named character. Uh, so, for example, we had mentioned a while back that the start collecting uh, Imperial Guard box, start collecting Astra Militarum that had like Acadian Squad, a Lehman Russ, and a Commissar was no longer was not a legal army because of how the the Cadian squads worked out. Um, or like if you built everything in the box, it wouldn't be a legal army. Now it's even more so because you cannot lead an army with a Commissar. They're elites only. So that though that's there's some odd decisions there as to what is just been gone. Some of them like the story ones that we they no longer make plastic models for. I get like I understand that, but it's still kind of some weird choices that have been made. Mm-hmm. In their place, though, we get some new characters. Uh, so some some of these are named characters. So for example, the aforementioned Lord Solar Leontis, Mister Horse Rider Boy. Uh, he kind of fulfills the same role as uh, Morvan Vall does for the sisters in that he is like – he is the head of all the Astra Militarum forces in the Segmentum Solar, the half of the galaxy on one side of the, the Great Rift that has Terra on it. He is in charge of all of those. And so, kind of much like her, he's got a four-up invuln save and cuts all incoming damage by half. He's like tough four, eight wounds. He can change up your secondary objectives or agendas after they've been after your opponent has revealed theirs. He's got the chapter master ability of like picking a unit, uh, you know, picking a core unit or character unit or a battle tank unit and allowing them to re-roll hit rolls. If it's core unit, they also get to re-roll wound rolls. So he's he is a lieutenant and a and a chapter master in one. Uh, he's got an aura of reroll ones around him. He also knows all the orders and can give out three of them. <laughs> and he can give out orders to vehicle officers and super heavy units as well. So he's he is all things to all people. He will fit in any guard army, no matter what. And if he is in your guard army, he has to be your warlord. And he has the Supreme Commander keyword, which means he can even be in a Supreme Command detachment. He's not a slouch in combat. He's strength six with a uh, AP three, two damage power sword and six attacks. And he's got a pla- basically a plasma pistol that doesn't overheat. He's a really, really good character. There's Ursula Creed, the daughter of a castle in Ursagar Creed. Um, she is basically, uh, a, like the most powerful Cadian commander. She can hand out three regimental orders a turn. She's got the, uh, a six inch bubble of reroll one. So she's basically like a named space Marine captain equivalent for guard. And also she's much like an autark. Uh, when the models on the battlefield, you can use the reroll, uh, command reroll stratagem twice per phase instead of once. And from using that, it is very helpful. <laughs> Although you run out of CP much faster that way, too. Oh, yes, you would. Um, also, uh, 
Each time this model issues an order to unit until the start of your next command phase, each time a model in that unit makes a range attack, add one to the strength, which again is really good when you're using strength three guns. Um, note this ability only affects the original target of that order and doesn't get spread out with regimental tactics. So, but still, she can hand out three orders a turn. So that's means like three units around within six inches of her can have plus one strength, which is really nice. There's a uh, generic, there's a Cadian Castellan, which is the more generic version of her that can give out two orders and doesn't have the Lord Castellan's Fury ability, just has a five up in Vuln and the reroll one aura. Um, I'm a bit disappointed that that one is specifically Cadian and includes the Cadian keyword. I would think having a generic Castellan that you could model as any faction would be nice and if you wanted to do something that wasn't specifically Cadian, it's a minor gripe, but having, having just a generic Castellan seems like it would have made more sense than having it specifically Cadian. Yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, um, You've got tank commanders who can give out mechanized orders to one unit. Platoon command squad can give out regimental orders to one, to one unit. Uh, And the plat. So there's a platoon command squad and this one can uh, swap out two guys in there for a heavy weapons team and can also take special weapons as well. On the other hand, there's a Cadian command squad that does all the same things, but you don't get the option to take a heavy weapons team. I'm really – and has the Cadian keyword. I really don't know why we have to have two of them. Because there's a new Cadian Command Squad unit in the box. Okay, fair enough. But it's like that. <laughs> yeah, there's no reason why that couldn't be a generic Command Squad. Yeah, because this replaces the old Command Squad kit. Although it is funny, there's no picture for the models for the Platoon Command Squad. But yes, the Cadian Command Squad. It's the new Cadian Commander. <laughs> but otherwise, they are they are functionally the same. I think the difference is the Cadian Squad can also take. The Cadian squad can take, uh, no, even the veteran command squad can have any number of veteran guardsmen can have their las guns replaced with special weapons. Whereas in the Cadian command squad, one of them or two of them can. Like the guy with the regimental standard can take a special weapon. One guy with a chainsword can take a, sp- a special weapon. And then that's it. And then for the platoon command squad, and you can have like one commander and four guys of a special weapons kind of like which is how is you you could they were often built before i've seen a lot of people run that so it's just there's some just interesting decisions in 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 hqs with this so yeah that that struck me as yeah when i put my notes we get two variants of command squad regular and cool ranch <laughs> <laughs> we also get gaunt's ghosts as a uh, as a unit uh, because they have a box set so of course we have to have a Gaunt's Ghost unit, which, to be fair, is the only Commissar HQ unit. And he does know Regimental and Perfect Disorders. He can hand out two of them a turn. And he's also always accompanied by the same five guys from Gaunt's Ghosts, which makes this basically the guard equivalent of the uh, Triumph of St. Catherine. Yeah. And considering that the, the unit has a combined um, 17 wounds... <laughs> If you take each model into account. True. Yeah, it's a, this seems like a very interesting choice, but I cannot imagine that, like, this would... I can't imagine this is used for anything outside of, like, fluff. 
you know, fluffy armies and things like that. Because this, right? Yeah, but, you know, I'm glad it's in there. And yeah, it's like every model in the in the unit has their own special rule and different weaponry. And uh, yeah, it's just decisions were made. It's a wonderfully fluffy unit from for that standpoint. If you want to play that, I love it. And again, the fact that uh, it, it has the Tanith keyword i need to double check i don't know if there are any strats that key off of tanith no i don't believe there are so it's just kind of there they can key off of it later if they want but uh it does represent the fact that gaunt often became often ended up in charge of units that were not part of the tanith first and only so like it makes sense it's fine it's just some interesting decisions are made here Uh, and then finally uh something you can add on to your command squads whether regular or cool ranch are bodyguard and special officers. Like we mentioned the master of ordinance earlier for that, uh, artillery, uh, stratagem. So for example, you can add a master of ordinance to your army, which, uh, allows you to, you pick an enemy unit within 30 inches and visible to him. Every time friendly artillery model makes a ranged attack against that unit, you reroll hit rolls of one, uh, to add that to a unit, that's a 25-point upgrade and adds two to the power rating of that particular uh, unit. And that's basically considered an attaché model. Um, no, And then, like, a command squad can have up to all three attachés, which is more, Master of Ordnance, Officer of the Fleet, or an Astropath. So if you want to add a, add a Psyker who has a Psychic action to gain command points, which is pretty cool. Um, you can add those to a command squad. Also, you have bodyguards you can add to command squads. That's where your Ogren bodyguard and Nork Dedog can be uh, added to a squad. They add three power to the unit and uh, cost 50 or 60 points. You know, 50 to 60 points, depending on how you kit out the generic bodyguard or whether you take Nork Dedog. But those are still options. You can You can add those to a command squad as well. And so you you have a lot of flexibility in your your HQ choices, but like I said, it's just like the story ones make sense. I'm also sad that there is not because we have a model for her. There is not a data sheet for Severina Rain because she is also a named commissar. She is not in this book at all, and we have a plastic model for her. Now it was a special edition model. Sometimes those don't get. Sometimes yeah, but you'd think they're. You'd think there would be some way to use her. I mean, I guess you could use her as just a regular commissar as an elite, but I don't know. It feels underwhelming. Right. But yeah, it's, she's not like she's not currently available for pur- purchase. She was like a Black Library special release model. So I understand kind of why she's not in here. But yeah, it does feel like, again, having a Lord Commissar model that I could use her as, not that I have her, but if I did, I would like would be wanting to use her in a game. And now like the best you can do is use her as a generic generic commissar, which is kind of a weird choice. Uh, moving on, uh let's go to number six. Talking about we're moving on from HQs to troops. We're not gonna hit every slot here. This is not like the Voton Codex. There's way too many units to try to do that on. But <laughs> and Voton uh, was one hundred percent new. Yeah, it was 100% new. But I do want to hit number six. This is about troops. Troops are different as well. Some classic regiments get their own troops, and we're no longer sending prisoners to fight. So the classic infantry squad, the good old-fashioned generic infantry squad is still here, equipped pretty much the same way. They can take uh, one special what uh, 
Like, you can have one guy take a special weapon, you have a sergeant, you can have two guys swap out for a heavy weapons team. That is still absolutely a thing you can do. And much like it was when the latest points update, that infantry squad uh, doesn't cost you any points to update other than adding a plasma pistol or power sword to the uh, to the sergeant. So uh, it's 65 points, which I think is a little bit more expensive than it was. I think it was 60 points before. Yeah, it's like all the upgrades are free. So you want to put a, a LAS cannon or a uh, missile launcher in there or a mortar. You can totally do that. It's it's free. Upgrade them however you want. Um, absolutely take a Vox caster if you. And in fact, I think it just I think it just comes stock with a Vox caster now. You just let's see. Nope, you can one one guy can be equipped with a Vox caster, which again it's free. Why wouldn't you? It's like always takes a always take a Vox caster, just like you always take a master Vox in a command squad. Now on top of the classic infantry squad, which is core and platoon. There's also the Cadian Shock Troops, which is the new box that they've put together. And the difference there is they cannot form a heavy weapons team and they can take two special weapons. And they have a Shock Troops rule which says every time a model in this unit makes a range attack with a LAS gun or LAS pistol, an unmodified hit roll of six scores one additional hit. So your six to hit, if you're playing Born Soldiers, should get you two automatic wounds. So really good with the LAS guns. But not a lot of and and a little bit more special weapons, but you can't take the uh, the heavy weapons squad. Why that needed to be its own thing, I'm not sure. Other than as you pointed out, Kevin, well, they made a kit for it, so they're going to use it for that <laughs> to encourage yeah. people to buy that kit. It costs the exact same as a uh, infantry squad. It's 65 points. You cannot give the sergeant a power sword or a plasma pistol. He can have a bolt pistol. He can replace it with a drum drum fed auto gun, but that's just Cadian shock troops don't don't roll that way. You know, don't roll with infantry or with uh, melee weapons. Um, so yeah, that's that's an interesting choice. Same power level, same points, just slightly different purpose. Death Corps of Krieg also have their own unit. They can also t- they can take a meta pack and a Voxcaster. They're a little bit more expensive at seventy points, and they have a rule that says um, they basically have a the weak version of transhuman physiology. One to, ones and twos to wound automatically fail them or fail against them, and uh, otherwise they can't take any special weapons other than well no they can take flamer grenade launcher melt gun or sniper rifle up to two of them can so you can build them out the way that the uh, kill team kit is mm-hmm. is set up. Um, if you wanted to take a plasma gun on them, too bad. That's not an option. They just can't um, because – or no, I guess – no, they come with a plasma gun by default. Okay, so there's always a guy with a plasma gun. So you can have a plasma gun and two melted guns in the squad. I take – I am corrected. <laughs> and they can take a meta pack. And they can take a power sword on their, on their watchmaster, which is their sergeant. And they have the Krieg keyword. They do not have the cult of sacrifice keyword. They're just – they're just different for being different, but they have the power sword because that's an option in the kill team box. So yeah, they rather than playing a Krieg army with the infantry squad rules, you can play an all death core Krieg army, but it's going to be more expensive because those units are more expensive. So that's a thing. Uh, and then there's Katachin jungle fighters, which are also their own unit represented by very ancient plastic kits. 
And their thing is they can take a flamer. For every five guys in the unit, which is 10, you can't increase them any more than that. So they can take up to two flamers. And when they melee, make melee attacks, automatic hit rolls of six score additional attacks. They're, I think, 75 points? No, they're 70 points. The Deathcore Krieg that are 75. So Deathcore Krieg are the most expensive. Catachin jungle fighters are slightly more expensive. And I don't really think worth it for what you get. It's like, I would just stick with the... I mean, just use your stock Catachin models as a regular infantry squad and you actually have more options. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. There are no conscripts in this, um, which were a big point of contention in like 8th edition, I remember, um, because of how they interacted with uh, like commissars and such. Conscripts not an option anymore, uh, which makes sense because there were not never models for, con- for conscripts. And if they can't sell you a model for it, they're not going to put it in the book. Also, there's no way to take a, a commissar as an HQ. So the HQ at like commissar, the patrol of commissar and two conscripts is no longer a thing. So, and because the order system doesn't require you to roll on it anymore or anything like that, like trying to balance conscripts was always really hard because, like, how do you make a unit that is cheaper and less effective than a guardsman unit without making it better just by weight of numbers. Uh, and they decided rather than try to figure that out, we're just going to ditch them entirely. Yeah, that's fair. And like, I think the, the default platoon like cover is, you know, just covers all of the things that you would do with those before. So I think it's fine. And then if you want to have the specialist platoons, you've got, you know, you've got your different specific guys from, uh, you know, from different worlds and regiments and stuff. So mm-hmm. I, it's kind of weird how they did it, but I, I like that they're giving, again, they're giving flexibility if you want to play Krieg guys with specific, you know, as specifically as Krieg, or you want to play Katachins specifically as Katachins, you have that option. But yeah, the probably better option is to just take him as a regular infantry platoon. Which is going to get confusing, like, if somebody's playing mm-hmm. Death Corps of Krieg and then saying, oh, no, I'm playing my Death Corps of Krieg as infantry platoons because they're 15 point or they're, like, 10 points cheaper. Like, that's going to actually get confusing, especially for those people who have entire Krieg armies that they've built who are not necessarily geared up the way that the plastic kill team box is. So, yeah, yeah, that's – this is going to be messy. This This has the potential to be a little bit messy. I don't – I don't know if I like this, especially because there's not a lot of benefit game-wise of having these as separate units. So this is a choice I I think kind of runs counter to the other good choices that we've seen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it remains to be seen. Obviously, we haven't seen this on the tabletop, but that's my concern is it could be confusing to people. All right, moving on. Let's go ahead and start taking a look at vehicles um, because number seven, your vehicles are shootier thanks to turret weapons, even if Lehman Russes no longer shoot twice. And that includes all six of your super heavies. So uh, one of the things that was added into this codex is a rule called turret weapon. Uh, turret weapons are on a number of vehicles, and it's not just tanks, because Chimeras and Hellhounds also have turret-mounted main guns. And so to uh, represent the fact that these weapons are kind of independently targetable and are the main gun for these vehicles, turret weapons have the following rules. 
If the model is within engagement range of any enemy models, it can still target and resolve attacks against enemy units that are not within engagement range of it with weapons with the turret weapon ability. Note when making such attacks, you must still subtract one from hit rolls due to enemy models being in engagement range. Which does also mean, like, you can fire blast weapons at other targets, where normally you can't fire blast weapons when somebody's in engagement range, as long as it's on a turret weapon. Um, the other thing is, each time a model makes an attack with that weapon, add one to the attack's hit roll, which does counter the minus one to hit, so you're hitting your base ballistic skill against targets that are not engagement range with you if you are engaged, and all the rest of the time, you're up your ballistic skills up by one which means most of your vehicles hit on threes which is fantastic for guard and as i said this is not just on battle tanks although battle tanks definitely benefit the most from it but like hellhounds with like their melta like their 24 inch melta cannons um you can't stop them by engaging them they can still fire their melta guns they're just going to be hitting on fours instead of threes your Lehman Russ will still be able to fire its main gun at anything at once. It'll just be firing it slightly less good. You know, slightly less good ballistic skill. <laughs> um, your super heavies. Uh, yeah, there's no stopping the super heavies from firing the ridiculous main gun on all of them. And yes, that includes the Bane Blade, the Bane Hammer, the Bane Sword, the Doom Hammer, the Hell Hammer, the Shadow Sword, the Storm Lord, and the Storm Sword. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say six? I meant eight. Eight super heavies in this book. <laughs> this even includes like the tanks where like like some of the 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 storm varieties, like the storm lord, the shadow sword, where like the gun is mounted in such a way that the turret isn't doesn't move freely, is still considered a turret weapon. So you can still fire it, even though it's not technic it's basically a main gun rather than being mounted on a turret note that there are weapons on the super heavies that are mounted on turrets where this does not apply like the at the uh, las cannon uh like not just sponsons but there are in separate las cannon turrets that you can have on like a bane blade this does not apply to them those are not turret weapons so they will not be able to fire outside of uh engagement range which is fair because that would just that would make there's no point to engage pain blade because you can't stop it from shooting. But uh, yeah, all the varieties of, of insert Bane or hammer tank here are all in this, uh, this codex and all of them get the benefit of turret weapons, including such ridiculousness as the shadow swords, volcano cannon, a 120 inch, Heavy D3 plus 3 blast, strength 18, AP minus 5, 12 damage. This is fine. This is fine here. <laughs> or the Magna Cannon, which is basically a uh, a Melta gun. Heavy D6, this is on the Doom Hammer. Heavy D6 plus 3, strength 10, AP minus 5, D6 plus 2 damage. That uh, is D6 plus 4 against anything within half range, which its range is 48 inches. So um, there's there's some just ridiculous gunnage on this. Uh, the Bane Blade itself, the Bane Blade Cannon is heavy 3d6, strength 9, AP minus 3, 3 damage, turret weapon, blast. Yeah, I mean, the Shadow Sword's always been a ridiculous tank. Um, it is even more so now. And then, of course, oh, where where is the... Uh, ah, yes, the Stormlord with the Vulcan Mega Bolter... Uh, heavy 20, strength 6, AP minus 2, 2 damage. 
I mean, always a classic with a ridiculous number of shots. Um, so yeah, your your tanks are your tanks and other vehicles with turrets. They're really really good. Um, so while you don't get the two shots if you moved like half range with your Lehman Russes, uh, I don't really think you're at a weak point with that because you'll still hit more often by hitting on threes. I, nothing to feel bad about there. Uh, and then that's going to move us to number eight. The new heavy support options are beefy. So we've got the Rogaldorn battle tank. We talked about that during our news and new releases. It is the tank that sits firmly between the size of a Lehman Rust and the size of a Bane Blade, and it has a stat line to match. It is strength 9, 17 wounds, and with a 2-up save. Um, it can take armored tracks, which will let it shrug off small arms fire, at least, you know, plus 1 to your saving throw against those, which... Uh, it means you're going to be saving against most things on twos that are going to do one damage. Um, and it comes stock with a Castigator Gatling Cannon, which is a heavy 12 gun. Um, a Twin Battle Cannon, which is basically two Lehman Rust guns duct taped together. And a Heavy Stubber. But you can also replace that... Uh, you're going to replace that battle can that twin battle cannon with an oppressor cannon, which is uh heavy D six plus three strength, 10 AP minus three, four damage that will be able to pretty much kill a knight on its own in one round of shooting. Um, you can, and it comes, you can, uh, let's see, you can replace that Gatling cannon with a pulverizer cannon, which is basically another battle cannon. Um, you can give it a pair of melta guns as, uh, Sponson weapons. You can give it a pair of multi-melts as sponson guns. Or you can give it more heavy stubbers and heavy bolters. Like, you can make this thing kill vehicles. You can make this thing kill infantry and everything in between. It is a ridiculously loaded tank. And even though you can only take it one at a time, it does have the squadron rule, which means, yes, you can give it orders as well. So, yeah, you add in some mechanized orders... To this thing, uh, you play them under that armored superiority doctrine, so it counts as five five models for holding objectives. And it's what two hundred points? Uh, yeah, the the Rogaldorn is yes, um, yeah, two fifty. It's two fifty. I think that's too low. It's two fifty. The melty guns are five points each. The multi melters are fifteen points each. The extra heavy bolters are five. The extra heavy stubbers are five. The main gun swapping out is free. So either of the main guns are the same cost, but it's still cheaper than a land raider. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's a problem. <laughs> it doesn't have transport capacity. I'll say that, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's. It's really, and to put it in comparison to a Lehman Russ, a Lehman Russ is 150 points each. And all the various add-ons for its sponsons would start to add up pretty quickly as well. But uh, one difference is the the Lehman Russ tank, or one change to Lehman Russ is also all the gun options for that are the same cost as well. So however you want to kit out your Lehman Russ, you you can uh, for this for 150. However, you want to you know plus sponsor and weapons. Same thing for the Rogaldorn, except 250 instead of 150. And to compare, a Bane Blade is 430 points. Also, all the Bane Blade uh, tanks are strength nine T nine as well. All right, Bane Blade sounds fine to me. <laughs> but this thing being T nine, yeah, basically, 
being as tough as a Chaos Space Marine Land Raider, but a bit cheaper. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a nasty tank. Now, one thing that you do have the benefit of is that your tank commanders cannot ride Rogaldorns into, uh, into action. They are only on Lehman Russes. So there is that. You can't have a, a Rogaldorn tank commander yet. Um, also, there's those new... F- uh, there's those new field or field ordnance batteries that are included in the Cadian box. Um, now they are basically better versions of the heavy weapons teams, but they are the heavy weapons teams are still in the book, uh, actually on the same page. Even um, I will say the heavy weapons squad, which is always a unit of three heavy weapons teams, does have the benefit of being a bit cheaper and having core, which the Field Ordnance Battery does not. Also, the Heavy Weapons Squad is infantry, which means it's easier to move them through buildings, whereas the Field Ordnance Battery is artillery and does not. But uh, you get two Ordnance Teams per battery, and they've got some pretty decent guns. And they are platoons, so you can still give them those regimental orders. But like the guns, they they can take a Heavy LAS Cannon, which is a Heavy 2 Strength 10 AP-4 D3 plus 3 damage. Or at the default one is a Malleus rocket launcher, which is heavy D6 plus 6, strength 6, AP minus 1, 1 damage blast at 48 inches. All of these weapons are 48 inches. Or the Bombast field gun, which is strength heavy D6, strength 7, AP minus 2, 2 damage, blast, ignore line of sight. So, like, all of those are good. They're basically better versions of the rocket launcher, the mortar, and the las cannon that you can take on a heavy weapons squad. I think they're a good choice. It just like decide on which one you want to have. The hardest thing is going to be those hundred mil bases are going to be hard to place and move around. So put them where you want them and plan on them staying there. Whereas the heavy weapons squads do have the benefit of being easier to move. I think they're going to be on fifties, but they might keep them on sixties. I don't know. We'll find out when they release those kits. Uh, moving on to number nine. And again, we are not going to catch all the points for this army, but these are some things to be aware of with the army. I mentioned that you can't take a Rogel Dorn commander yet. Well, kind of. Because there's also number nine, tank aces can make any of your tanks even better. So just like this is the thing we have to have in every codex where there's some units that you can upgrade by paying power and points to be something that's not a relic, but gives you a benefit that's kind of like a relic, but isn't a relic. You can basically take any battle tank, which is your Lehman Russes, your Rogel Dorns, or any of your super heavy models. So your Bane Blades and, uh, and upwards from your army, you can make them tank aces. It costs anywhere from 15 to 25 points for these upgrades for battle tank. 30 to 40 points for upgrades for the uh, super heavies. There is one that cannot be taken as a super heavy. And actually this one makes me sad because when I put together my notes, I missed that this was one you can't take. And that's because you can make one of your tanks, a steel commissar, which allows it to give out commissar perfectus orders. And unfortunately you cannot do that on a super heavy. So you cannot in fact recreate commissar Yerick's fortress of arrogance. Which Aww. makes me very sad because <laughs> I was like, that would have been cool. But no, no, you cannot do that. But you can make a, you can put a commissar in a Lehman Russ or a Rogel Dorn, and that is totally fine. So, um, so th- yeah, there's a variety of bonuses. You can have one per tank, and you can't have the same tank ace in the same army twice. 
But, uh, for example, Vaunted Praetorian, did you want to have a Rogaldorn officer or a rogue or a, did you want to have a Baneblade officer? You pick a super heavy or Rogaldorn battle tank model only. This model gains the officer keyword and knows mechanized orders and can issue one order. Nice. And if it was a, if it was a super heavy tank, you can order, give those orders to other super heavy tanks. So... <laughs> Yeah, normally you can't, like, a smaller tank can't order a larger tank around, but larger tanks can order other large tanks around. Did you want to take away cover? You can do that. Did you want to give that tank um, transhuman physiology? That's also an option under the mechanical pack rat ability, which only costs 20 points. It's not even the most expensive order in here, or tank ace upgrade in here. That seems like a problem, because that's a way good ability to have on your on a tank all the time. No, yeah, no, that that seems like that may be a problem. <laughs> uh, veteran commander, give this tank a doctrine that nobody else in your army has. Just, just this one is better at something than anybody else. Uh, Knight of Piety, give it a five up and vulnerable save, and let it shrug off uh, mortal wounds on a five up. Master of Camouflage, this one is thirty five points for super heavies, twenty five points for regular tanks. I don't think it's worth that much. It The tank is counted as being under light cover from more than 12 inches away. Unless it's Titanic and then it's 18 inches away. It's fine, I guess. Yeah, but the fact that that costs more than the, than ignoring wound rolls of 1, 2, or 3, like I think that indicates that maybe GW doesn't quite understand how cover works in their own game. <laughs> right. And then finally, Steel Commissar, which you cannot give to a super heavy and costs 25 points for regular tanks. You can only, okay, so you can only, that's why you can't do it to super heavies. You can only put it on an officer, which means you can't, it can only put it on a tank commander. This order knows, this model knows perfectus orders in addition to mechanized orders. But, uh, so, okay, so you, that's, so you can have a commissar tank commander, but like you can't, you can't put a commissar in any other tank. So you cannot have a commissar Rogel Dorn because you also, once you make the Rogel Dorn an officer, that's its tank ace upgrade. You can't also make it a commissar, which is sad. But I will say with the, um, with the tank aces and the fact that you can have multiple tank aces in your army, with the fact that you can take that armored superiority doctrine and with the variety of vehicles and tanks you have available, a tank only army is actually very viable in this book. And I know it's, it's a, been a favored build of guard players for a while, just, just out of sheer coolness aspect. But I think with the way that you can give vehicles counting as multiple options and you have the tank, the mechanized order, which can like give a vehicle objective secured, making a, a tank based army actually can work in this codex. And I really like that. Like I do, I do like the the army builds that I'm seeing that are possible. And then finally, speaking of army builds, there's one section of the guard we have not touched on, and that is the Militarum Tempestus. And number ten is Militarum Tempestus are their own almost sub faction, and they place by slightly different rules for army building. But Cadian Casterkin might just be a little better. Uh, much like with the Eldari Codex, where you had like all the Harlequin stuff tucked at the end of the regular Eldari data sheets, the Militarum Tempesta stuff is all sequestered at the very end of the data sheets with their own color scheme and everything. They get their own uh, HQ choice. They have their own elite choice. They have their own dedicated transport choice. 
and uh, they are still solid units. They have better saves than uh, the rest of the guard army. They definitely have better guns. Hotshot las guns are AP minus two instead of AP zero. Uh, they have uh, the stormtroopers ability, which allows them to get additional hits anytime they make an attack on six. So their sixes explode, which is really nice. Um, you can deep strike them if you want. Their command squad can actually take an upgrade, which allows them to have perfectus orders, but they can only give those orders to other Militarum Tempestus units. So you don't have to have a commissar to get those orders. So you get a, you can end up with a very flexible command squad. And if you build a detachment that is all Militarum Tempestus or Ordo, uh, uh, or, or officio perfectus, which is commissars, you, you can build it, like if it's all, all officio perfectus or militarm tempestus, which includes Valkyries, Valkyries specifically have the tempestus keyword. You can build an entire detachment of that because those militarm tempestus become troops if you do. In fact, there's even tempestus only, uh, Warlord traits. There's three Militarm Tempestus Warlord traits. There's a number of stratagems that target uh, Militarm Tempestus or other units. So again, they're not locked out if you don't take Tempestus. Like there's one that targets Tempestus and Kasserkin, one that targets Tempestus and and Mechanized. There's uh, Immovable Indoctrination, which just targets Militarm Tempestus. So like you can build a fully Tempestus army and still you still have access to a regiment regimental doctrine and everything. Totally fine. They are, and they are a perfectly good choice. If you have built a Militarum Tempestus army, great. Uh, and that's one case where that start collecting box, I hope they don't retire it when the uh, combat patrol for Astro Militarum comes out, because that one is actually a viable build for a starting army. Still up on the website as of right now. Um, and that one comes with a Commissar, a Command Squad, a Five-Man Troop Squad, and a Tarox Prime. That's a legal detachment so that because those five guys become troops and then you've got the command squad and this squad is one of the few that doesn't just start at 10 you can have it in five man squads so military tempest is totally viable for an army build or just for a detachment even however there's another choice in the book for that same kind of elite unit, and that is the Kasserkin. Kasserkin got a brand new kit in Kill Team in the most recent big box set. They are not available standalone yet, but they did want to put Kasserkin rules in here. They also have access to hotshot las guns. They have access to hotshot marksman rifles. So they have hotshot snipers in here as well. They cannot become troops. But when you add a Kasserkin unit to your army, you can select a combat or a regimental doctrine. You select a regimental doctrine that you have not used in your army yet and give it to this unit. So this unit gains it. Now that's per unit. So you can build up quite the stack of Kasserkin units with different uh, doctrines if you take multiples. Although, and it's not, doesn't cost you. Any more points. In fact, they are 10 points cheaper for a unit of Kasserkin than for a 10-man squad of Militarum Tempestus, because Tempestus are 11 points apiece. The only difference is that you can take them in 5-man units instead of 10 if you want. I mean, Kasserkin are a really good choice. And again, by taking those doctrines, that unlocks keywords, which unlocks stratagems, which can give them just as much flexibility, if not more so, than uh taking Tempestus. And really, Tempestus only become troops if you 
take them in an all Tempestus detachment. So unless you're going all in on Tempestus, Kasserkin might actually be the better choice to splash into an army. So uh, that one's really going to be picked to taste. Uh, if you already have Tempestus models and you don't have the new Kasserkin yet, because again, they're not available separately yet they are only available and i think in into the into the shadows box or whatever the newest kill team two-player set was right shadow vaults that's shadow vaults and it is currently out of out of stock but that's the one that had the has kasserkin in it versus necrons and uh so that's the only place to get kasserkin right now in a couple of months i imagine they'll be available separately so kasserkin really really good choice Tempestus, also a good choice. And again, because that Cadian keyword only matters on a couple of stratagems, you're, there's not really a bad way to go with, with these, whichever one you want to go to. It's just, I think once the Kasserkin kit becomes available separately, it might be the more attractive choice for splashing into an army. So we'll just have to see what happens with the uh, Tempestus line after after this happens, because if that start collecting box goes away and the Kasserkin box comes out separately, mm, Kasserkin might be the might more people might go with Kasserkin because they're also newer models with the better uh, proportions and everything. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, either way, uh, they're not bad choices. And so that's our top 10 things to know. There's a lot we haven't covered because there's a lot of ancillary units uh, we hadn't barely touched on any of the elites. I mean, Ogrins and Bullgrins are still in here. They're super chunky and tough. Uh, we didn't even mention the Adelin Rough Riders, which get new models. And those are back as a fast attack choice for, for riding down and taking out tanks. Um, the, the new Sentinels, the, the fact that like the Hydra is just absolutely killer at taking out, um, aircraft. Because it's a heavy eight gun that doubles the number of shots against aircraft and adds one to the hit rolls. And it's a turret weapon, so it will also still, you'll still get your plus one to hit because then that extra plus one will counter out the minus one from shooting at a flyer. We didn't mention the fact that the Death Strike rocket has a whole new set of rules and has different warheads you can take. But uh, there's only so much we can cover, and also we don't play guards, so some of the nuances on this might be lost to us. I did find it interesting that the Aegis defense line is now specifically a guard-only fortification and has a brand new model that they show. Oh, that's new. Because the photo on here does not match the old Aegis defense line. As opposed to the Aegis defense line being the fortification everybody takes (laughs) to fight the Necron flyers. Yes, it is now. <laughs> it, it it is just an Aegis defense line. It is has no guns attached to it at all. It is it is just a line of walls that you can take in your army. So uh, and it costs it costs forty points for the privilege. Yes, yeah, so we barely like I didn't even mention that. Also disappointed, not surprised, but disappointed that there's no rules for doing traitor guard in here. You can I mean you can make a traitor guard army. You can um, make like you could pick a couple of regimental doctrines that you think will kind of work to represent that, but you're not going to ever have like there's no way to take like for it to gain the chaos keyword or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I will say by having like 
by having other options with doing some head swaps and things, not having like heavy weapon squads isn't necessarily as much of a, a weakness. Like there's plenty of other things I could do to make a, uh, a trader guard army, but yeah, it's uh, definitely not a thing you can do. Also that commissar that leads the, uh, the blooded in the kill team box cannot be an HQ. That also makes me sad. So, um, but also, the Commissar can't take a Power Fist anymore. Um, <laughs> so, it's a moot point. Um, so, yeah, it's just like, that feels like a little bit of a missed opportunity, but it still opens up a, a door later for them to do a, a proper Lost in the Damned slash Trader Guard book. But, uh, but no, um, so this was our f- one of our first times actually covering a Guard Codex on our own. What's like ha- having having kind of gone through our, our list here, and and we've all played against guard armies at, at different events for multiple years, <laughs> for me- multiple years, multiple editions. Like I and I know, like Kevin, you and I, I know, and Dennis, did you play against guard at the Crusade event? Yep, it was very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have that obscene relic that allows them to like re-roll everything for a turn. So, well, that's true. That's they didn't good. have that against me. <laughs> Sure, because <laughs> I was a chaos. But that, that that I don't that relic just isn't in here anymore. So that's good. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of relics in here, but uh, but uh, I specifically I mean, looked for that one and I didn't see it. Yeah, so. because yeah. <laughs> I was like, that sucks. I don't like that. Anyway, what? How do you feel about reading a little bit? Maybe kind of getting a feel for how guard actually plays and the tips and things that they have, and especially the army design they're going with in this book now. Okay, I'd say for me, neutral. It doesn't feel too different to me. I am actually thrilled and disheartened about the full tank build because I think fighting against all tanks is about as much fun as fighting against knights. (laughs) So I have a feeling we're going to see a lot of that and just it's going to be infantry is going to be relegated for like if i take infantry they're going to be just doing actions and stuff because like even at the crusade thing once the guard player had taken out anything that could harm his vehicles that's when he started advancing which also wasn't many things um because he pretty much got rid of the paragon war suits on the top of one so after that he was able to really just kind of own the board because i had no other answers other than celestine Mm-hmm. And I remember back back in the day, uh, I got I got tabled quickly by leaf blowers. Just mm-hmm. anything with lots of vehicles that have lots of shots that are not costed a lot will blow you away. And unless you bring dedicated anti tank guns, you're going to be suffering. And then it becomes like you said, Rob, playing its knights. It's just not fun when you can't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Although it's it's going to be an interesting counterpart tonight. It'll be inter- like seeing which would win a mechanized guard list versus a, a knight list. Like who's going to survive that? Because I think the knights are going to be tougher than armagers, but not as tough as the big knights necessarily. Yeah. It's probably whoever goes first. <laughs> Most likely, yeah. <laughs> Until we what get into you, a Kevin? system where there's alternate activations. Um, <laughs> just trying to tie it all back together. Um, 
I really like where they're going with the design philosophy of this army. They easily could have, and I know there would have been some people that, that really wanted them to, go through and give reg- regimental doctrines for Vestorians, Valhallans, Elysians, Death Corps, like, and make those all like specific, distinct ways of playing the army. And I, I think GW has kind of realized that that they want to be able to give players options, but they don't want the book to become completely unwieldy and completely, you know, full of options that people don't take. So I, I think this is an interesting compromise, and I think it does signal a design shift that hopefully, you know, will carry into the next codex cycle in 10th edition and, you know, clean up some other things and, and kind of future proof this codex so that um, if we do have a new edition on the horizon, this book is still viable and competitive and doesn't, you know, isn't going to be replaced in six months. So I, I kind of hope from, and that's my hope from that. I do think it's interesting that this army is a lot simpler to play than even its previous one. So I think it's interesting that it will probably attract some new players to it because of how simple it is to play. But it's kind of odd because it's also a an army that is hard to collect because it's so big. Like, so I don't Unless know. I, I tanks. Yeah, well, that's why I think that maybe the tank, the mechanized tank build might actually be more popular because of that. Because you can build an all tank list and you don't have to build as many troops and as many models. Like, it's cheaper to do it that way. Uh, tanks are, well, it, it's going to depend on how much the new box, the new sure. uh, kits cost. Because a tank army, something that has like seven or eight tanks is still going to be pretty expensive. Sure, but I mean, as opposed to hundreds of infantrymen or something like that, like, I don't know, like, it's, it's definitely going to be a lot faster to build and a lot faster to paint, um, and we'll, we'll play a lot quicker. So I don't know. I, I think you will see a lot of new mechanized, um, new mechanized, uh, Astro Militarum players that come in, you know, anybody that, that picks up this codex and starts playing it, I think will probably be playing more of those mechanized type lists. Um, but it's still neat that there's the other flexibility and the other options in there. So I think infantry is still good in this book. It's just not, uh, you know, the, they did some, the weird segmentation of the infantry will create some challenges, I think for new players, but existing players will like it. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like rules wise, this does feel like, uh, a more approachable army than a lot of others. Like I, like there's not a lot of, gotchas i think with some like the regimental tactics rules um mm-hmm. unit placement like you're not necessarily penalized for not placing things like right in the right way and things like vox casters allow you to you know give you a lot of flexibility you've got lots of unit choices for putting out exactly the kind of infantry and vehicle firepower that you want it's got pretty much every spot covered from like all you know, HQ all the way through flyers and super heavies and fortifications. It opens itself up to a lot of potential builds, a lot of potential flavor. I I am concerned. Like it is one of those armies that is expensive to build, no matter how you go about it. But and, and the new kits are not going to be any cheaper. But yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this ends up working out. But I, I do like the design that I'm seeing, and I do feel like if I had these rules for playing like Trader Guard, I think it would 
like it'd be really easy for me to pick this up. And Richard, you actually are going to be playing these with your gene stealers. How are you feeling about what you're seeing here? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm interested to, to see how this kind of works. I'm, I'm probably going to lean more towards, you know, using like sentinels and, and, and the tanks and such. So less infantry, but I, I'm also kind of curious to see how established guard players feel about this book. Cause I did notice as you were going over all of this stuff, how often you said this isn't in the book anymore. Mm-hmm. And so like, eh, that's a lot of stuff that sounds like people eh, can't use anymore or at least are going to have to use like drastically differently if they are going to use the same stuff. Yeah. I imagine there's people who went all in on, on things like commissars and, and, uh, and conscripts like back in the early parts of like eighth edition that are going to suddenly find themselves with a whole bunch of infantry that they're going to have to retool as squads because it's, and, you know, people are definitely going to be going in and retooling armies, which is not unusual with the Codex. But, yeah, there's a lot of options that are just gone. And I've already seen people being very sad that Yarrick is gone. Yeah. Alas, poor Yarrick, we knew him well. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, it's I, I think it'll be it'll be interesting. I, I'm I am curious to see how existing guard players are are going to take to this. Like the f- initial buzz I'm seeing from like people reviewing the book seems to be generally positive, but yeah, it'll we'll have to see how it actually plays. But I don't I don't think there's anything to be feel bad about. I think it'll still work as an army, whether it'll be a competitive army because it doesn't like again I haven't gone through over every unit. I don't play guards so. I don't know if there are any huge updates, but like stuff like the way the rules, like the order system is not too different than what it was before because of a lot of the balance changes have been rolled in. Turret weapons are really good for them. So like tank, I think the tanks are automatically getting better. Like a lot of the vehicles just get better in this. The guard and the infantry absolutely doesn't get worse. So yeah, we'll have to see, and especially the new characters. Like, we'll have to see. Like, do people start taking that Lord Solar? Do they take Ursula Creed? Like, who who gets brought in? Like, what are the builds that are going to shake up from this? I'm curious to see what that's going to be. But, but like, I will say, like, if I if I were of a mind to build guard, I wouldn't necessarily feel bad about starting with this this book. So, no, I I'd, I'd, I'd say it's pretty good. I I, I don't dislike it. All right, gonna go ahead and move on to hobby progress. Um, hobby progress. I have primed all of the black. Er, black. Uh, I have primed black all of the blood angels I had built um, over a period of about two days. Um, so that's one thing on my to do list that I have moved forward on my Kanban board. Um, the, uh, I, I still have like a couple of tanks to build and, and prime, but I I've got enough stuff put together now that I've got a variety of builds I can do. So I'm going to work on that. In the meantime, I also rebased some seekers 
because they go on different bases now. They're on ovals rather than the thin little lozenges, which <laughs> that right. was fun considering how tiny their feet are as far as like the point of contact on the base. Ooh, um, I, I hear you. <laughs> I only broke two ankles and got them glued, like actually like cemented back together. So they're solid plastic again. Um, but I got them all rebased. And then other than that, that I've been working on, um, I've been working on some Age of Sigmar stuff. And as I mentioned earlier, I picked up, so like at US Open, I picked up like the start collecting box for Slanesh Demons and a box of Demonettes and the mask. I <laughs> picked up a Keeper of Secrets this last week also. So, um, so I've got that staring at me on my shelf of shame um, to be worked on eventually. Um, so I am going to be building out a, you know, Slanesh force, whether I'll use it more for age of Sigmar or 40 K. I don't know yet, but uh, we'll see where I go with it. I have done nothing. I am. You so have been moving people busy. around. Yeah. I am so busy and it's not going to let up until like for another month. So I, uh, I bought a combat patrol for leagues of OTAN yesterday. That's my hobby. That's the totality of my hobby progress for probably the next month. <laughs> Well, you got something. I guess I will build upon Kevin's then of when we got back from US Open, I already had the friendly local game store reorder and hold for me a Combat Patrol, a Sagittar, a Grimnar, the Hearthguard. And so I picked up all those. And just because I fell down that rabbit hole, I also picked up the dice, which are really cool dice. So, I mean, I've got the sister's dice, the Eldar dice. They're like the, the kind of like an orangish gold color, right? Yeah, they look in different light. They'll look more brown and then in bright light, they'll look a little orangish, like amber colored. So they're neat. To, they don't go with my color scheme at all, but they're still neat to have. Um, and then I was like building different lists on, on like trying out things. Then I got the idea like, I, I wouldn't mind actually going with the idea of having the four Sagittars. So I, I, I went out and picked up two more. And then I also, um, after I got my second Hearthguard unit put together, so I had, I was like, I want really a third one to flush out the whole, like, army. I mean, I probably won't run three, but so yeah, I picked up that. And then I was trying to put together everything I could before the cold hit. And unfortunately, the cold's here now, so. Everything I've got primed, which the last thing I got primed was the second Sagittar. So I can actually run a squad of two and split a troop up. Um, but yeah, we've just got very cold weather in Dallas for the next at least week or so. so. Yeah, same here in KC. That So no more priming for me. I will just be painting. And in the midst of things, I've now got my second um, squad of troops almost done. I just have to like do cleanup work and an edge highlighting and shading on them. And I worked and got the Grimnir and the two corves with it pretty much done. So I'm, I'm very pleased with how they came out and then just, I'll be doing more and more painting because it's, it's painting winter time. Um, <laughs> I will say that if you need to prime anything else, I, what I've been using is uh pro Acryl, uh airbrush prime, like, their black primer through an airbrush I, you barely need to thin it at all it does not clog my airbrush at all it's like the only airbrush primer i have that doesn't clog my airbrush it comes out very very flat matte um it's fantastic so 
if you if you find something that you have to prime and it's too cold outside, I recommend having some of this around. It's and you can brush it on as well, but for an airbrush, it's it's some of the best primer I've used. I'm I I need to track down some of their like gray and white to use that, but I'm definitely a fan. Well, thankfully, I have everything from at least that two thousand point list primed. Um, anything else, I actually still need to put together. Because as Kevin noted, I still have like Berserks, two squads of Pioneer. I, I have a lot to put put together, <laughs> but I, I plan to get it all put together before winter's over, at least. For me, um, I've still been super busy at work. Um, that's probably going to start finally slowing down. But uh, I pretty much all I've been able to do, manage to do is uh, paint the the golf rocker. So. That's it for my hobby progress. Um, when do we get to see how he looks? Um, I I still need to I still need to do the base. He's he's pretty much done. I I need to do a little more. I think I need to do a little more detail work on him too. But um, he's he's almost done. <laughs> Well, when he is done, we'll be sure to share him on the the Facebook page so everyone can see see the the glory that is the new golf rocker. And again, thanks to Games Workshop for sending us th- that, especially in time for your birthday. Yeah, was was a nice <laughs> treat. So it was cool to be able to handle that over or hand that over and be like, hey, here you go, happy birthday, have a golf rocker. <laughs> As far as uh, the morale phase, um, two things I would say. Andor has been really, really good. I think we mentioned that when it was just starting a few weeks ago. Um, it has been fantastic. We're, we just finished episode 10 this week. And um, some of the best Star Wars television they've done yet. The The build up to episode 10 is is really intense. And then episode 10 itself, One Way Out, is is great. Some fantastic acting from Andy Serkis and Stellan Skarsgård in that one too. So, um, yeah. if you if if Star Star Wars is not your thing because of too many space wizards, uh, Andor is really good because there is nary a space wizard to be seen in this series. It is it is like grim and gritty Star Wars, which is grim and gritty political like Game of Thrones Star Wars. It's great. But what uh, if we like our Grimners? Uh, if you like your Grimners, that's why they also released Tales of the Jedi like okay. a few weeks ago. And they had Obi-Wan just recently. So, they, I mean, that Obi-Wan is effectively a Grimner. So, I mean, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing is something like we were talking about last week uh, in our role-playing session, Dennis, and that is Marvel Snap, which yeah. has... I have started playing with that and and kind of comparing and contrasting it to another card-based mar- uh, mobile game, which is Warhammer uh, Combat Cards. And it's interesting to see how they are similar and how they are different and uh, which one I'm finding I like. I, I'm still trying to figure out which one I like more. Um, Unfortunately, I would lean towards Snap for me just because Combat Cards I liked – but it it felt for me at least hard to collect the cards because I w- I wanted to play Eldar mm-hmm. and it, it took me a while and then I had to spend some to get the avatar and it's like ah eh. well I will say I don't 
care as much about Marvel. I mean, that sounds like counterintuitive, but I think because of that, I can just take the base cards I've got and just play. And what I like the most about it is I can play five, 10 minutes, maybe three, two or three games, be happy and put it down for a day or two days and then play it again. Maybe I might play like 20 minutes worth, but it's super casual in my mind. At least to me, it's been super casual. So I can just like pick it up, put it down as been a little nice distraction. Yeah, I've yeah, started, it is okay. I've started playing it as well, um, and I've actually been enjoying it quite a bit. The I think the only thing I find frustrating about Marvel Snap is if you do like really want a specific like hero, it's nigh impossible to like guarantee you getting one. Yeah. Because they're I'll just random. I don't know if they're random or if certain levels unlock it, certain characters. It, it's it, from, from looking at it, there are like the first like tier of your collection progress is set. But then once it goes up to the, the mystery cards, like that is just random from a pool of cards and then i yes, think some I, of I them are set mystery to you but they had it already knew what they were on the no end. oh that's no i mm, i think interesting some of them may be set at certain spots and that they're a mystery to you but i was looking up online because like i want squirrel girl and it is apparently she's you get her from level eight to level 214 of the collection. Okay. So it's like, okay, just random when you get it. So random up to like certain levels, then you'll be sure to get it. I, I assume so just cause there's only so many cards. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I would like to get Deadpool, but I haven't even, I've seen him in a couple games and, well, unless you buy like an alternate version of him with gold, right? Like if he shows uh, those, up in the market, or are those still no, just skins. Those, those are, are just skins. Yeah, those are just skins. Okay, so you still have to unlock the base card first before you can get it. Yeah, which I think is why I've taken the attitude of I'm just going to play with whatever, yeah. whatever they give me, and because the flip side, like I said, is is wanting that in Richard's case, Squirrel Girl, or me in the Warhammer game, wanting the the avatar and wanting to play Eldar. It kind of threw me off of, I have to spin to get that. Well, Snap doesn't allow you to spin, which probably in a way is a good thing. <laughs> I mean, Snap does allow you to spend for like the season passes, which unlocks some cards, it seems like. But like, I'm guessing because like the current, the current season is tied to like Wakanda because, you know, Wakanda Forever just came out. And so, like, level one of that, if you have the premium pass, gives you, like, a Black Panther card, and there are Black Panther boosters that show up, but I can't access them because I'm doing free-to-play. And so, it's like, yep, I just don't have those. But yeah, like, I've been trying to decide whether I want to engage with the monetization on on Snap. It doesn't feel like I have to. The slowly grinding out cards isn't too bad i will say one thing that kind of gets me on on snap the the one of the few things that i don't that is 
kind of it's a double edged sword is the absolute randomness of the locations you play in <laughs> because there are some locations that just completely destroy your deck concept and you have no control over them unless you are playing cards that like Scarlet Witch that can change a location. I'll say that's the part I like the most because I can use I'm pretty much still using the the starter deck. I've made some one modification, I think. And that makes sure every game feels differently for me, even though I'm using the same cards. Fair, fair. I've got like three different decks and my like I'm only up to like collection level like one ten, which is not even which is like maybe halfway through the first tier. But like I've got the like I've done the Moon Girl Devil Dinosaur deck, and I've got a cut like a deck that focuses on uh, like I've got a Spectrum deck where I use like a lot of characters with ongoing abilities to get the boost from her if I get her on turns to play on turn six, assuming I don't get hit with something that raises the cost of everything. Or so it's like there's a lot of locations that sometimes they're just ridiculous like the one that turns everything into the hulk on turn three (laughs) Um, so much fun with that one yeah or the one that just has a 25 percent chance of killing a character killing cards when they get played that room's dangerous yeah hence the name (laughs) the danger room but it's just like there are locations like that it's like oh this is this 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 location isn't fun at all um, and so, like, it just makes the game feel like you can kind of go into it with a strategy, but it's extremely random, and sometimes that's frustrating. Whereas with combat cards, I feel like I can make a deck, I know my deck's strategy, and I, like, there's always the chance that I hit a bad matchup, but I, like, I can try to build my decks to to mitigate that somewhat. And, like, I don't, I will agree that, like, the older monetization on combat cards was a little bit rough, but since they put in a season pass, it's like $8 for a month. And by the time you're done, if you play like a little bit each day, it's so, it's like so generous that like I never have to buy gold again in that game or like coins again in that game because they give you over 10,000 per season. <laughs> Okay, that is interesting. I I will admit I'd stepped away from that game, so huh, maybe I'll go re-download it and check it out. Yeah, I I was I kind of like stepped away for a while. When I came back, they put in the season passes, and it's like the free level of the season gives you like every three levels. It's like the first level is four hundred gold, the second level is like forty plasma, the third level is cards or a frame or a card back or you know some customization or extra cards and then if you do the season pass it's like a hundred extra gold every coins every time you hit a coin level 10 extra plasma every time you hit a plasma level and more cards and i'm at the point where like i was there was a period where i was burning through coin like crazy because i was getting so i was getting more upgrades than i was getting coin to spend on them and i'm hitting that a little bit in in snap where I've like more upgrades than I have credits to pay for them. But it's just like, it feels like combat cards have gotten, it's gotten very generous. And then in addition, they'll have like card markets that will, uh, that you pay coin for that you can, that get restocked regularly. So like I can find, fill in the gaps pretty easily. And of course I'm also like nearly max, like I don't know if there's a max level, but I'm very high level at this point. So I've got like access to all the cards. So they kind of do the same thing where some cards aren't available as random pulls 
if you haven't gotten your level up to a certain level, kind of like in Snap, you just don't get access to certain cards until you get to a certain level. But I like I feel like of the two games, Conquest or Combat Card Combat Cards is more I think has a bit more tactics and strategy to it, whereas Snap you go in with a game plan and hope it goes well because like it's going to be an extremely random. Which yes, sometimes adapt on the fly. <laughs> you do have to adapt on the fly, but sometimes I end up with a little occasional more feel bads than I do with with combat cards, and it may just be because I'm newer to Snap, so I don't want to. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad game. I just sometimes it feels more frustrating than it has to be, and I'm also apparently from what I've read, I'm still at the point where everybody I'm playing is a bot. Like later on, like I think once you cross that two fourteen threshold on your collection level is when you actually start playing human players but like everything is bots before that so we'll see how it goes but like it's not a bad game and if you like marvel it's like the cards are like the artwork it's not fantastic but it's it's neat it's colorful it's it's quick and dirty the games being only six turns means you know a game's not going to drag on and the way they do like limited resource pools so you can't just like flood the board turn one with stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's a decently balanced game. It's just the randomness of the locations is sometimes it is a minor frustration, but I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely fine. I, I, I do particularly enjoy just how like the games are, are generally pretty, really quick. Yes, I will. I will say that now it's, it's not a bad game. Uh, like, like I said, for me, I think I like combat cards. Like, even separating out the 40k versus Marvel thing, I think I like the gameplay a little bit more on on combat cards. But Snap is not bad, and Snap is a nice, casual, just fun game to do some basic deck, deck building and, and play and, and just see silly Marvel stuff, which is cool. All right. Well, I think that wraps up episode 269. Nice. Of... Uh preferred enemies we'll be back in a couple of weeks oh actually there was one thing i forgot i completely forgot in our news and new releases we'll talk about this next episode the holiday boxes have been announced and we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks um i completely blanked on that but uh so that's something to look forward to when in two weeks we'll kind of dig into those because by then we should actually know some pricing on those too uh so there's a couple that i'm still tempted by even though i don't need them (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I know the feels. Uh, but until then, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and you've got your orders. Go check out the Astra Militarum. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.